1: Welcome to the dunked on basketball podcast. I am Danny LaRue your interim host Nate is still on his honeymoon having a wonderful time. And this episode is brought to you by The Athletic, a subscription-based publisher of Smarter Sports Coverage. I can vouch for it not only as a contributor for a very long time, but also as a consumer of it. And a good example of this is the news that came out on Tuesday that Elton Brand was going to be the new general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. I knew Derek Bodner was exactly the person that I wanted to read on that. The Sixers have other great writers. Derek is my personal favorite. I was a subscriber of his before he joined The Athletic. I am, of course a subscriber now and to be able to have access to that whether you want to do it through their website or i personally absolutely love their app i think the app is a great way to engage with the content no ads just an incredibly clean experience and it's in-depth coverage that goes beyond the game recaps and trade speculation for smarter analysis written by people who know these teams inside and out doesn't matter if you're a basketball fan football fan hockey fan hockey coverage is awesome and you can get all that from The Athletic. And the way to get it is theathletic.com slash cap If you do that, you get 40% off your first year of subscription. I've been a part of it since basically day one. I am honored to be a part of it and thrilled that they are associated with Dunked On. One more time with the URL, that's theathletic.com slash for 40% off your first year of subscription. Like most of the dunked-ons that I've been handling, this is a two-parter. The first section is with Albert Namad, Heat Hoops, just amazing cap guy as well, going in-depth on Miami as a point of Kind of time clarification on this: We recorded before Dwayne Wade formally announced that he was returning, and before Pat Riley's announcement that Dion Waiters would miss training camp and probably the first part of the season. Though we talked about the possibilities of both those of the podcast, we pretty much treated Wade as coming back, which ended up being good. And then the second part of this podcast is with. Michael Schwartz, who is a content researcher for ESPN, a lot of you know him from Valley of the Suns, we go in-depth on Phoenix. Again, paranoia about whether they're going to make a move between when we recorded it and when it happens, but the content is there anyway. I think you'll really enjoy it. But first up, Albert Namad on the Heat. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: With Miami, like for a lot of these, I think a good place to start is really what this team was last year, and really whether that is repeatable. And my kind of thesis is that I mean there are some health things we should definitely talk about, but I think Miami is a largely similar team to last year, and so expecting a similar result is totally fine.
2: I think they're a very similar team to last year. They just they brought back just about everybody from last year. I think the the the, the, the the right place to start was actually with the 2016-17 season. They started 11-30 and 30 in their first 41 games that year. And then they finished the season at 30-11, and 11, their second 41, and they thought they figured out something along the way. They thought they found a way to win without a star. They had a drive-and-kick philosophy that was surrounded by floor spacers. But as it turns out, they didn't really have that way. They ended up with 44 wins. They were about an average team, and they had an imbalanced roster construct- construction. I'm filled with a lot of guys who are very strong role players, but they lack the true star to bring it all together. So, I mean, they have one point guard in Dragic. They have six shooting guards in Wade when he came on board um, midway through the season and, and, and Josh Richardson and Waiters and Ellington and Tyler Johnson and Magruder, all of whom deserve playing time. They have one small forward in Justice Winslow, who hasn't fully proved himself yet. They have two power forwards in James Johnson and Kelly Olenek, who have the versatility to play center in small ball rotations, and they have two true centers in Whiteside and Adebayo. The question is how do you find playing time for all of them? And I don't think, even though it was the exact same team as we saw last year, I don't think they've gotten enough answers that translate into answers for this season. So I think we enter this season just as unsure about what the rotations will be, and I think we'll go through a lot of them as the season goes on. And it's a, I, sorry. No, I, no, go ahead.
1: And it's a really important point that they they have all these guys that are deserving of playing time. Miami is in an unusual spot where they're not trying to necessarily fill holes. They're trying to make sure that everybody's happy. And so they have all these players that are worth NBA rotation minutes at the bare minimum. Some of them are clearly deserving starters. But a lot of them play similar positions. And so last year, they it, it is... Important to note that they were missing Dion waiters for most of the season he only played in 30 games and then Wade came on late we a, as of when we're recording this we don't know if he is returning for the 1819 season but and they missed and they missed waiters to be sure but they don't they, they had enough pl- players to replace him and they had a lot of other guys that largely stayed healthy last year
2: well waiters provided something in the 1617 season that we could not replace in 1718 and that is, The Heat has a lot of guys who are sort of secondary playmakers, but no primary playmakers. The best we have maybe is Goran Dragic. You know, um, James Johnson creates some plays. Justice Winslow can as well, mostly in the open court. But Goran, I mean, but um, Dion Waiters was a very good driver of the basketball and created offense. He wasn't necessarily great at finishing at the rim, but in the 16-17 season, he passed out of those drives about 40% of the time, maybe a little bit more. And when the shooters were open. That's how we, we got, uh, he created the offense for us. And then when, when Goran, when Goran Dragic was the guy creating the offense by breaking down the defense, Dion Waiters was our best catch and shoot three point shooter. You wouldn't have expected that, but when you have that kind of dual ability to both break down defenses and shoot when somebody else is doing it, that becomes a vital player, and we couldn't replicate that, that last year. So it was, An important thing that we were missing, I'm not sure he can replicate what he did in the 16-17 season, so I'm not sure it'll come back this year.
1: So along those lines with Waiters, would you, if he's healthy enough to play, since he and Dragic, I think, are their two best creators, for other people in particular, would you separate those two guys, stagger it a little bit, or would you start them both? Because starting them both means you have a better starting five in terms of offense, but you have a
2: weaker second unit. So I think the Heat has a lot of combinations on the second unit that work. If he was able to be the floor-spacing shooter plus the the guy who can penetrate um, into the lane and break down the defense and create offense for others, I would absolutely start him alongside Goran Dragic. And then I'd have, I'd have um, Josh Richardson at the small forward. Ideally, in a perfect world, I would like to see Josh Richardson play shooting guard. And I think he's very much a, a long-term piece for this team. But I think you have no choice since we don't have a very strong, well, we have an unproven, let's say, small forward in Justice Winslow and nobody really behind him. Uh, I think that you would have to play all, those, uh, all three of those together in order to be able to create uh, a team that has the necessary floor spacing. Because this team needs that floor spacing and the um, one, if not two to three people who can, who can create offense since there's no one particular person you can just rely upon to consistently create it. I would also say I, I think that, that that Pat Riley is really focused around four people as t- in terms of our long-term future. I think one of those people is Goran Dragic, the second is Josh Richardson, a third is Kelly Olenek, and a fourth is Bam Adebayo. It may surprise you that, that, that Dragic is on my list for that, but I, I do think that the Heat likes him. A lot of people are saying, well, if, if a team offered a first-round draft pick for him, the Heat would gladly do it. I, I don't see it that way. I, I think nobody on this team – is is not available in trade if the right trade comes by. But absent that, I think Goran Dragic, I wouldn't be surprised if he played out his contract, and I wouldn't be surprised depending upon how things work out next summer or two two summers from now if he exercises option. I wouldn't be surprised if they bought him back. I think Justice Winslow is a guy they want to add to that, but I think he has a lot to prove, particularly with his shooting. He had a great year last year in terms of three-point shooting, but his shot really isn't um, one that has a whole lot of touch so it stands to, to, to be seen whether or not he can replicate that. He shot, I think, 38% from three-point range last season, but he wasn't particularly good at free throws. He wasn't particularly good around the basket. So if he can develop into a guy who has a little bit more touch on offense with his shot, I think that he would become one of the people that Pat Riley views his team revolving around into the future. But, but there are questions um, that need to be answered this season for that.
1: Yeah, Winslow is is a tough guy to to figure out with all that, because also, if you narrow it to his three-point shooting, then that is one thing. I mean, so he was 38% last year after being 20% the year before, 28% the year before that. But he also had a, you know, he was shooting 20% on mid-range shots about, I think 21% overall. And then... You said his free throw percentage. You know he didn't. He didn't shoot better from the line. So when you're looking at it, especially when a guy only takes two three pointers per game, I think it was at like one eight or something like that. And mostly unguarded. Yeah. Mostly unguarded. So you have so you have a lot of that stuff that kind of runs that runs together. And so, sure, if he takes more threes, if he makes the, even the same proportion or fewer, but close to it, then that's a valuable player. But that 38% in isolation is not as valuable or as definitive i think as some people think it is and i would
2: i would wholly agree with that
1: And Winslow, the other thing that I think is striking with Miami is that they have all of these capable perimeter players, and I'll define perimeter players on this team as non-centers because they can do a lot with with their fours, but I don't think any of them at this point in their career identify as a true small forward. James Johnson can play it, to be sure, just as Winslow can play it, but I think both of those guys are better at power forward than small forward, and so you get into this weird spot where you have enough players... To absolutely, I mean, Miami's a, a very deep team, but they don't necessarily have that just like real prototypical one through five kind of spread to make it work out. They have a lot of good pieces, but you have to basically put the puzzle together properly at any given moment.
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's a very odd roster construction. They don't really have a true small forward, and they have a ton of shooting guards. So what they do to compensate for that is, is they start uh, – Josh Richardson at small forward. I don't think that's an ideal way to do it, but that's one way they've chosen to do it. So, and, and other options, they, they like to use the term versatility. Versatility is really just, we have an imbalanced roster construction, we've got to overcome that, and there are players who can play multiple positions, so they, they, they sort of, they sort of overcome that issue, but it is an issue going forward, particularly because you have just so many shooting guards that need to find playing time, and, and the question is where, where, where do you get it. And it's just as confusing in the front court, by the way. I mean, where you have, um, you, you have Hassan Whiteside, who, you know, a lot of people have grown very, very weary of, but, um, he's, love him or hate him, he's going to get playing time this year, and he's going to probably start. I don't think the Heat are ready to start Bam Adebayo over him. Um, Adebayo has shown that he deserves more playing time this season, so he'll get playing time too. And then they could they throw out lineups where, where James Johnson's, uh, Johnson and Kelly Olenek play together. Um, so the question is, there's four guys there that need, that need playing time and how to get it, get it to them all. It, it's a very, as the team overall, it's a very interesting team. I don't think defense is the problem here. I, they were seventh best in terms of na- uh, defensive rating last year, which is which pretty solid. And they were better on the road than they were at home. So defense really isn't the issue. But The issue is offense. And, of course, when you don't have a, a, a guy who can drive um, down the lane, create offense for others without, without huge floor space, shooting becomes a very big issue for this team. I mean, just look at it. Every team is probably this way, but in their 44 wins, they shot 39% on threes, which would have been second best in the NBA, and 33% in their 38 losses, which would have been worse in the NBA. But, but go beyond that just a little bit because that, that's sort of a, sort of true for a lot of teams. They're top five rotations in terms of plus minus, Kelly Olinick was in every single one, even the top six. That that was surprising to me because he's not a particularly good defender, but he was in every one. Josh Richardson was in four of the five. Wayne Ellington was in four of the five. All three together were in three of the five. So you can clearly see that shooting is a very big portion of of being able to create success because The guys who are creating the offense need that floor space. And in every one of those five rotations, the Heat shot 39% or better on threes. So Kelly Linick was particularly surprising in terms of um, plus-minus, in terms of um, on-court, off-court, net rating. (laughs) Kelly Linick had the highest net rating with him on the court of any other player. And when he was off the court, they had the lowest net rating. So that that was was a little bit surprising to me. But um, you can clearly see the Heat needs two things to find success. One... Is multiple guys in the court to be able to create offense, and two is enough shooting to to to, to be able to, to pay that off.
1: That's a really fascinating combination of stats, and and one one piece of context that I think is somewhat important is that a lot of those guys are talented, but come off I mean, largely come off the bench. Lenek started I think 22 games something in that range, but they play. But I mean Miami so good that they are going to absolutely dominate. Backups, so they'll they'll do well in those minutes. But Olenek and you know Richardson and and, and Ellington played fair enough against starters, so it's not a totally like simple or anything like that.
2: Yeah, it's it's somewhat misleading because you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as the, as, as this goes on. But um, they play in certain segments of the game. Kelly Olenek doesn't play a whole lot, not a whole lot. He does sometimes, doesn't play a whole lot in, in crunch time in the fourth quarter because of his defense. Um, and there's not a whole lot of times where he starts. The Heat is as Again, it, they've mixed and matched rotation so much and expect the same this year where they try to start some people and try to find combinations that work. But he didn't start a whole lot of games either. So, yes, um, that the, the the composition of the minutes that he gets it dictates some of the success as well.
1: You also brought up the defense, and I think that's an important place to go with Miami. I mean, last year, yeah, I think they were 7th or 8th in defensive rating, and – when you look at the, uh, the profile of it, it was pretty much in line with what my, how Miami has exceeded the last couple of years, limiting the amount of three-point shots that opponents take, forcing a lot of mid-rangers, and mid-range shots are just less effective overall than than the, the three-point shot. And then, you know, they had a couple little aberrations, like for whatever reason, teams hit a lot of long twos against them last year, more than other years, but they made a bunch of floaters. That, that's not as big of a deal. And Miami, it makes a lot of sense considering not only their talent but also their execution. But where I wanted to go with that is I think one of the most interesting storylines last year with you talking about Kelly Olenek's plus-minus is that Miami defended pretty well when he was on the floor last year, and so maybe they don't need as good of defenders to stay strong on that end. Maybe not as strong, but stay strong, and then they could ratchet up their offense and they could make up some ground there. Well, so uh,
2: I would agree with that, but the heat, is, their, their identity is defense. And you know, Josh Richardson, to me, is very underrated. He's an elite level defender at the I call him shooting guard, even though he plays small forward. But but on the perimeter, he's an elite level defender. James Johnson had a down year defensively, but he's still very, he's still pretty good. And when he's at his best, he's an elite level defender to me as well. So they've got and Justice Winslow is a is a is a good I think somewhat overrated, but a very good defender. So they've got a lot of players who can play defense and they don't, and, and of course, Bam Adebayo and, and, and Son Whiteside play defense in very, very different ways. Um, Bam Adebayo being a center who is very, very mobile, but he can't necessarily rebound and he can't necessarily block shots so well. So he's got to morph his game into somebody, you know, less Clint Capella and sort of more, uh, I would say, some other players, but, um, he, he's going to have to, uh, to morph his game to somebody who's not really an intimidating presence down low, but um, is somebody who can be effective both interior and, ext- and, and out on the perimeter. So got a lot of guys who can play very good defense, and the Heat likes to play that, especially in crunch time situations. So the question is <laughs> to find a person who's a very good defender and also somebody who who is a very good offensive player is, is something that um, is very difficult, and the Heat doesn't have a whole lot of those types of dual players in that way, especially in terms of floor spacing, um, people who are able to shoot.
1: Yeah, and that puts a, a lot on Eric Spolstra to get the players in the right sequence, to put team, to groups on the, on the floor that can compete on both ends. And so I'm really interested to see who plays and when and also how much they look to the future and how much they look to the present because bam you brought up as a really good question here because I think he actually could long at least long term fit what Miami wants better. But it's probably gonna take him some time. All
2: right, if you're talking about better than a song Whiteside, yes, I think the Heat views uh out of bio as a sort of a a, uh, a long term piece more than than Whiteside at this point. I think Whiteside's got a lot of time. I think he had a down season last season. I think he's a better player than that, though, and I think he gets a bad rap. Um, but I don't see Whiteside necessarily as a long-term piece for the Heat. I think the Heat is hoping that Adebayo will develop and can become a long-term piece, particularly at the center spot.
1: One of the questions we have in these is whether how the new additions will fit in. There aren't really any new additions on Miami, so we can move on to...
2: I, there, there's just one addition, Duncan Robinson. He, yeah. He's a... Uh, uh, he was sort of a, a very good uh, three-point shooter coming out of Michigan, but was undrafted because of the doubts alongside every other aspect of his game. And he did so well in summer league. He shot 55% from three or something like that. But that Heat had to give him a two-way contract before they actually wanted to give anybody a two-way contract. So uh, I think, um, you know, he's not going to get a whole lot of playing time, but I think it, it, his biggest question is not a shooting. He's not going to replicate a shooting during the uh, course of an NBA season. I think that would be unrealistic. But he doesn't need to. He's, he's got a good shooting stroke. If he can defend the perimeter, he could actually get meaningful playing time at the small forward position because the Heat doesn't have anybody else. But if he can't show that he can move his feet and defend along the perimeter, then he'll be a fringe player.
1: Yeah, that's definitely possible. So So we can move on to another kind of basic but interesting question with his team which is based on what we saw last year and moving forward what players on miami do you expect will be better this year and which players do you think will take a step back
2: i think josh richardson will get better i think josh richardson is a little bit people misinterpret what he is in my my impression he's never going to be a a superstar type of player i like to consider him as a three and d player on steroids because i think he's already an elite defender on offense he is a very good shooter when his feet are set he can't shoot off uh, on the run like like say a wayne ellington can but when his feet are set he's a very good defensive uh, um, um shooter um after if you remove he struggled over the first half, month of the season but if you start at december he shot 44 percent on catch and shoot threes for the rest of the season that was the best in the team so I think he has that capability, but but more than that, if if a defender rotates to him too quickly, he has the ability to step around that defender, take a dribble or two, pull up at the free throw line, knock down that that jumper, and if the lane is wide open, he can actually penetrate all the way across the lane and shoot one of those sweeping hook uh, uh, layups that he does about once a game. We all get thrilled about, but. I don't think he's a guy you can necessarily rely upon to create offense for himself or others, but I do think that he can be a, a very strong player. So he, I think, will take a step forward. I'd like to see his shooting, especially from three point range, go up from 37.8 overall, I think, to over 40%. I think he has the capability and I think he has, the, his defense will be just as solid as it was last season. And I think he can round out his full offensive game, not just his shooting. Another guy I'd like to see take a step forward is Bam Adebayo. Um, like I said um, earlier, uh, he's not a, uh, necessarily a great rebounder or shot blocker, more of a guy who can move his feet. But but um, he can defend interior and on the perimeter. He needs to become more of a sort of a Draymond Green type than a, than a Clint Capella type necess- um, per se. Uh, He obviously can't create offense like um, Draymond Green can, but he's a pretty good passer, and he's been working a lot on his shooting. Uh, According to the team, you know, it's tough to translate success in in transforming your shot in in the offseason to actual NBA games, but if you can do that, he'll become a a critical player for the Heat. Who's going to take a step back? (laughs) There's a lot of players who can take a step back. Uh, We talked about how Waiters had just an incredible end to the 16th, well, before he got injured and to the 16-17 season where he was not only a great um, driver of the basketball, he was a great shooter. I'm not sure he can replicate that kind of success, and if he can't, that wonderful chemistry he developed with uh, Dragic might go a little bit, and you might have to sort of mix and match at that uh, shooting guard position. Another guy who's going to take, maybe take a step back only because he had such a great season, his best season ever is Wayne Ellington. I mean, the guy was just... Unbelievable! You, you just never pictured he would develop into the player he was last season. He, I think he had like 220-something three-pointers, and he was constantly shooting on the run. Um, he, he's not a guy who needs his feet set. I mean, you just set screens along the perimeter and have him rotate around until he can get uh, just an inch of floor space. Not necessarily Steph Curry, but that kind of, of shooting I don't know if he can. Re- and, and of course, he had great uh, conversion percentages, 39.2% last year. So I don't know if he can replicate that. But um, I don't think it would be reasonable to assume that he could. So he is a candidate for getting worse. Although I hope he doesn't, of course. And Justice Winslow, we, we talked about his shooting. You know, his his three-point shooting um, was very, very good and opened up a lot of eyes. But it was on very few attempts and it wasn't guarded. And and as I said previously, he doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of touch. So I would expect that to be an anomaly and for him to go and um, sort of regress more towards the mean. Yeah, that's
1: that's that's a really good list. I mean, there was a lot of what I was going to say, and with Ellington in particular, you know, I could see him having a strong year, just not as strong because last year was ridiculous. You know, he had an amazing year. Typically, players don't have the best season of their career at thirty, especially when it's you know, it it just what he did was really impressive. Yeah. Uh, I was just going
2: to say, say, the problem with that is there were times the heat has, like I said before, the heat has a lot of good secondary playmakers, but no real primary, uh, uh, very, very strong elite level playmakers. So there were times when the heat offense just struggled and, all you really had to do was set a screen for Wayne Ellington and and he would create that three to create the offense, to keep the team in the game. And even when he wasn't shooting the threes, there has to be defensive players rotating along with him. And when screens are set, scrambling to, to move past those screens to get to him and that creates offense for others. So even if he's not shooting, when he is capable of shooting like he did last season, he commands so much defensive attention that it creates offense for others. And if he doesn't replicate that, it could have consequences for the rest of the offense as well. Just that's,
1: that, that's a great point. And somebody else that I wanted to talk with you about, this isn't necessarily a progression regression guy, but Deion Waiters missed a bunch of time last year, talked about that. Rodney McGruder also played an important part in the 16-17 season and was out last year. What do you expect from him this year?
2: So Rodney McGruder is actually a pretty strong player. You know, he's a, he's a good defender. He's, he, he played a you know, small forward. I mean, we have a bunch of very tiny shooting guards playing small forward unfortunately uh, just because of the roster construction but he played um a fair fair amount of small forward overmatched um size-wise but did a very good job and um from the first season to the second season his shooting um transformed as well i think i, I can't remember what his sh- shooting percentage was but um three point shots were almost like 40% i want to say i think he could be a very good player the problem with him is that he has so many guards um, that I just don't see how he's gonna elbow his way into playing time, but he deserves it. Uh, I, I think he could develop really, really nicely. Um, and he, he'll be a, he'll be a restricted free agent next summer, so I think, you know, this could be a player who could be around for, for, for a long period of time. I just, I just hope that he can elbow in some playing time for him.
1: I do too, especially because he's somebody they used to try to fill the small forward gap two years ago. He did a pretty good job there, and I, they, they're still looking for answers. And if he can do well, then maybe they can slide Justice Winslow and a couple other guys a little bit more to the fore, which I think is, is best for them. But we'll have to see. And he, as you said, he has to battle through a bunch of different guys at there. I want to take a quick break from conversation with Albert to let Nate tell you about Everlane.
3: So when Everlane became a sponsor, they asked me to try out some clothes that I might like. And then they found out that I was leaving for the honeymoon. And so thankfully, we're able to rush the stuff to me. I'm actually wearing it right now as I record this. And it's really just like such high quality. I'm wearing this Henley shirt that I got from them. My wife just told me that she really likes Henley shirts on me, not 30 seconds ago, and I'm really impressed by the quality. of The jeans they got fit very well also. After shred for the wet, I was able to s- fit into the slim jeans as opposed to the athletic cut. But both uh, are quite comfortable. But really, everything about them, the the packaging, even stuff like the labels and the tags on the clothes. They had pinned the tags on there as opposed to using those plastic things that are impossible to get off. And then you try and tear them and it ex- actually ends up tearing the fabric of your clothes. No, they didn't have that. It's just really basic but extremely high quality stuff great essentials and they don't mark it up they tell you what their costs are because they want you to know what you're paying for and why and then they're also transparent about the materials they use the ethical factories that they work with and nevertheless their prices are 30 to 50 percent lower than traditional retailers you can check out my personalized collection including the aforementioned henley shirt at everlane.com slash Capspace. And you get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash Capspace. Once again, everlane.com slash Capspace. Let them know that slash Capspace URL that you came from us.
1: This is an interesting question for Miami in particular, but are there players? I, I'll, I'll throw one out at the very beginning of Josh Richardson. So players that you think are, like by the general population, are. Overrated or underrated, like maybe like uh, 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 underappreciated gems, and yeah, I'll start it with Richardson. I think Richardson is way better than the general public thinks.
2: I, I do as well. He's he's a, he's a much he's a, an overall much better player. than I think that people realize. Apart from that, I think we have a lot of strong players. Is anybody really much better than people think? I mean, Kelly Olinick had a had a surprisingly good season. I do think that he is somebody that the Heat very 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 much value. Um, James Johnson uh, sort of struggled, like I said previously, struggled a little bit defensively last season, but he's a very solid player. <laughs> um, but these, are, these aren't these guys that are ridiculous. I mean, apart from Josh Richardson, these aren't guys that are ridiculously undervalued. I, I don't think there is anybody who's a star necessarily waiting to happen that nobody's, just, people are just underappreciating. So, I mean, again, the Heat has a lot of good players, no very, very good players, and no no bad players. It's tough to say you don't deserve any playing time to any one particular person, um, uh, contract notwithstanding. You know, Tyler Johnson has a ridiculous contract, and people um, say you know, it's not a ridiculous contract, really. It's just weighted wrong, uh, unfortunately, and a lot of people, you know, that, that caused a lot of issues for the Heat and their ability to roll cap space over, and that's why you saw a lot of, Signs last summer that you may may or may not have liked. It was it was necessary because of cap space being rolled over. But Tyler Johnson himself, despite the contract, is a very good player. It, it's hard to find somebody who's who's ridiculously under or overvalued. Just everybody on this team is solid. That's that's the way I would characterize it.
1: I, I would agree with that. And we've talked a little bit about Miami's rotations, but where I want to kind of go with that and Wade is the elephant in the room. We do not know his decision as of when we recorded this, but. Thinking about primarily the closing lineup, because I think that's a good place to at least start with this analysis, what do you think the the Miami best five slash closing five should be, and what do you expect it to be?
2: So Goran Dragic will definitely be on the floor. Josh Richardson will definitely be on the floor. Dwayne Wade, if he's here, and I suspect he will be, will be the primary offense creator, so he will be on the floor. Uh, and then secondary offense creators, particularly if Wade is not back, would, would be Dion Waiters and James Johnson. I don't really think it's Tyler Johnson. I don't really think it's Josh Richardson. It's it's really um, and 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 Gordon Dragic should be an offense creator. But in my mind, you know, I've noticed over over the years that in my own sort of my own sort of head, I tell myself he's really somebody who gets tired over the course of games. He's he's a much better first half player than a second half player. Last year, he shot 48%, 41% on threes in the first half, and then 42%, 33% on threes in the second half. So um, over the course of the last five minutes of a game, maybe he can rebound. But um, I think he's more passive in the second half than I would like. So I think it would be Wade as the primary offense creator, and then Deion Waiters and James Johnson can can fill that um, role as well. And I think I, I don't think Whiteside's going to be in there much for uh, those types of situations. I think Bam Adebayo has a chance to be in there as well. So you're looking at if I if I had to go to a to a five player rotation, uh, Drogic, Richardson, Wade if he's if he's back, Bam Adebayo, and and maybe a James Johnson. And the Heat didn't really play um, Kelly Linux so much in that role because again. Um, he's not the best defender and the Heat really values defense in those situations. The problem is those situations also require scoring. Um, and Dwayne Wade can light up the, the, the scorecard. I mean, the one playoff when we got was, was simply because he was dominant, but when, but his efficiency has gone down over time. And the problem is you need scoring in those minutes too. So you, you, you have to think about who in the last five minutes can de- deliver that scoring. I don't think, uh, you know, Whiteside didn't really get that role last season. I think you can expect that to continue because while he's a very good defensive player in in certain situations, I think it's pretty easy to manipulate um, as the opposing team, your offense, to to take advantage of him, namely to switch off of him to get him out on the perimeter, and then he's not as effective on the perimeter as down low. So uh, I think Dragic, Richardson, Wade, Adebayo, James Johnson, Deion Waiters, these are guys who are going to play in the last five minutes, and what the rotation will be will just depend Tyler Johnson can in, in spots as well. So the Heat has shown consistently that nothing is consistent, that they've, they've mixed and matched the rotations. So I think you'll see certain players will always be in that um, closing um, crunch time lineup, but um, um, the actual five-man unit will change over time.
1: And that makes sense when you consider the depth of this team and who's playing well on a given night. As long as you can keep everybody happy, they can absolutely go in that direction. And Miami stands out because they just have so many players that could credibly be a part of that lineup. That doesn't mean they all will be and they can't all be on any given night. But they have a lot of guys worth trying. And it'll also be interesting to see how the passage of time affects this team. You know, like, bam out of bio, I would expect to be significantly better this year. So that changes the calculus. You know, maybe... Somebody like Tyler Johnson has a has a good summer. I mean, if if Waiters plays anything like what he did, in, especially at the end of sixteen seventeen, then he probably has to be out there too.
2: Yes. Uh, so I, again, he would be the the secondary offense creator in my mind. Or if Wade's not back, he would be the primary creator because of what he did. What he can do is particularly good evidence that that is the sixteen seventeen season. And yes, we got a lot of guys who can create that that that. Um, um, who, who can, who can be in that sort of last five minutes of those critical games. Uh, and a lot of guys who, who probably, who weren't last year, who, who could. I mean, again, I say, like, Kelly Alinek wasn't, wasn't really a part of that so much, but, but he could be, um, despite some defensive questions. The heat like to play guys who can, who can play defense in those situations primarily. And so that is somewhat limiting, but yes, they do have so much depth that they can, they can mix and match in that, in that scenario, particularly if they need points, if they're, you know, there, there's differences between crunch time lineups. If you're down a couple of points versus up a couple of points, you know, and one guy we didn't mention, by the way, is Justice Winslow. He can get those minutes as well. It's very, very difficult to find one particular rotation. And I think uh, Eric Spolstra has shown that he will mix and match. There are certain, again, there are certain players that will always be there Josh, Rich- Josh Richardson being one, Goran Dragic being one, and wait if he's back. But I think the other two players have, uh, other two spots have, have an openness to it.
1: I'm happy you brought up Winslow because he was somebody I wanted to talk about both in this space and overall because this is such a massive season for him, about to hit restricted free agency. I do not expect to see an extension because of the the structures with Miami unless they, they they get such a good price that they just take it now. So he's going to have so much to play for. Ellington is going to be a free agent again because all he got was that one-year deal. I'm surprised he didn't get more somewhere else. And then Magruder is also going to be a pending free agent. So I don't necessarily expect any of those three to be in the closing five, but if any of them do progress enough to make it there, it's going to be big for them.
2: Yes, and I think Justice Winslow can progress into that role. I I, um. Uh, you're right. I don't think the Heat are going to give him an extension. I think the Heat would, depending upon how the summer rolls out, I think they would bring him back, but on a reasonable deal. I, I don't think he's going to be in the, in the range that we saw last summer, um, or I guess if you view if you, this summer as last summer, then in, in the summer of 2017, I should say. But I think the Heat would bring him back on a reasonable deal. And, yes, this would be an absolutely critical season for him to show – that he can progress along the lines that he progressed. Like He made a lot of strides last season, very, very much did. Um, So he deserves a lot of credit for that. And if he can continue that, then I think the Heat will bring him back and, and view him as a core piece.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's going to be one of the definitive elements of Miami this year. Is will the young guys, primarily Bam and Justice Winslow, will they be able to uh, even partially supplant established players, deserving players above them? Because if they do, then you know it's still going to be hard for Miami to like move on from Hassan Whiteside, considering he is owed twenty-seven million for the nineteen twenty season, much less the twenty-five and a half for next year, for the coming year. But they could at least kind of start lining up the future with a guy like that. And Justice Winslow, you know, they still have James Johnson, depending on how you see the positional stuff with him, and they have enough minutes to give everybody some time. But if those players can start to supplant it, not only do you get value from them, but also those are players that you expect to be getting better year after year as opposed to players who might be, you know, they could hit age-related downsides at any point.
2: Yeah, and, and Winslow will have a, a particularly good shot at the start of the season because Deion Waiters isn't fully healed from his ankle yet. So whether he gets fully healed at some point before the start of the season, he's certainly not going to enter training camp fully healed. Um, so it, it leads to questions as to how the Heat will start its, its opening day rotation. Will they fill the role that Deion Waiters would have played with another shooting guard, namely uh, Tyler Johnson, perhaps? Or will they maybe give this spot to Justice Winslow? How will they fill that fifth spot? Because you know that Goran Dragic is going to get one. You know that Josh Richardson is going to get one. You know that Hassan Whiteside is going to get one, even though um, Bam Adebayo is probably the future. I do not think the Heat are going to take away that spot from Hassan Whiteside. And James Johnson is probably going to get one. Um, so how do they fill that fifth spot? Ideally, it would have been Dion Waiters um, if he could replicate what he did in the second half of 1617. But if he's not back, then they, they, they move to Tyler Johnson, perhaps, or perhaps they move to Justice Winslow, or they, they find some other combination. So Winslow will get a shot, particularly early on, to show that he, he can uh, maintain the progress he's been making.
1: Let's think a little bit broader scope comparing Miami to the rest of the league. What do you think are their strengths compared to the most NBA teams?
2: Uh, First of all, depth. Um, uh, They have a lot of very good, uh, strong depth. And second is they just – effort. I mean, consistent effort. You know, last season – this is a team – Just picture it. It's not a team that that has a lot of of guys who can just take over a ballgame and score, apart from Wade on certain nights, particularly, um, of course, if he's back. If he's not back, then that's completely gone. But in the clutch last year, now I don't know, and and this is something that might not be able to be replicated, but in very close games, they were, I I just looked it up on NBA.com, I I think they were 29-24. and which for a team which is, is a good offensive team but but can't produce points in, uh, in certain situations just because they, they bog themselves down, that's pretty damn good. So they're a team that just out-efforts another team, and I think that's something they have on the rest of the league. Now, something that they don't have relative to the rest of the league is, is top-level talent. So it's a trade-off.
1: It is a trade-off, and so, yeah, I would I would – echo that i mean depth is certainly a big strength also defensive intensity and execution i think is a real strength for this team i mean they do a really good job of forcing opponents to take the shots they want them to take and that's a big part of why they succeed and you brought up the clutch the clutch element of it yeah miami was in terms of net rating they were plus 9.9 in clutch situations last year 29 and 24 and the big kind of if you want to call it a red flag for that for me was that they were eighth in clutch offense, and I would not expect that, especially considering for the overall season they were 20th in offensive rating last year.
2: Yeah, so when you get to how rec- how much they can recreate what they did last season in terms of a record next season and beyond, that becomes a, a glaring point. Can they replicate what they did last season in terms of their offense in the clutch? Is that more of a, a fluke or is that something they can count upon? And, and you mentioned it. You mentioned the stats overall versus the last uh, five minutes of the game. So it, it's certainly something that causes concern going forward. But, but, but yes, they, they have the defensive uh, ability to stay in all of those close games. Um, and and they have the effort uh, to, to get there. It's just a question of whether they can execute as well as they did last season.
1: And that gets into another a weakness that I wanted to talk about. You brought up the lack of star talent, but it's just reliable generation of offense, and that leads into what we just discussed, because if a team can't score consistently but can defend, they're going to end up in a higher proportion of close games, so then their close game success is going to matter more.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This team is not going to blow anybody out, so... Um, or or they will just on, on very rare occasions where everything is clicking offensively and that happened last season a lot uh, sometimes so but it, but it's not going to happen consistently they're going to be in a lot of close games and, and they're going to need to be able to execute not only on the defensive end which is not a worry but on the offensive end which which can be a worry you know Wade is is the guy that they can count on to always create offense but as the seasons go on he's become less less efficient. So the question is, uh, which guy's going to be able to do it with a whole lot of efficiency and, and, and the team, which guy's going to be the guy that the team, the team can count on. I don't think there's any one player that you can say the team can count on. They will scroll through a lot of their players for that offensive creation in the clutch. Um, and then, of course they'll struggle at times as well. When, when nobody's really stepping up his game and, and, and doing it, they will struggle to create, create points, which, which creates concern about the very, Uh, the very time, the crunch time, that that, that it performed so well in last season.
1: Right. I I think that's a good way of putting it. And I'm trying to think of if there's another real significant weakness that we haven't necessarily discussed. Well, I I think something that could always be a challenge is, and this isn't a weakness of the team, but it's just a potential thing to watch, is just can they keep the chemistry that, that is so perilous for a team that can't play everybody that deserves it? You know, like that's a, it can be a real challenge for teams. Spo is an amazing coach. They have a great staff. Guys buy in, but eventually, even if they make a lot of money, guys can chafe because they want a bigger role. They they feel like they can help the team, and it's not just like selfishness. It's beliefs so, that they can do it.
2: So I think that's a, a concern for only one player. I think this is a very strong knit team, and I don't think that's an issue for everybody on the team except for one. And I'm concerned about that with Whiteside. If he doesn't get his minutes, he'll start. He'll, he'll start, start lagging and start pouting a little bit. Um, so that does become a concern there for him, particularly if he's not getting, you know, minutes. He didn't get a lot of fourth quarter minutes last season and, and that, that created some, some tension, um, sort of in the locker room. And, um, after the season was over, um, they had to have a meeting to, um, to, to, to talk, talk through that. But I don't think it's an issue for, for everybody else on the team. What I do think is an issue is they have a lot of players who can do certain things, but, It's not a perfect combination where you can say this guy can both play great defense and create spacing on offense. Now, Josh Richardson is the obvious exception, but outside of that, I don't think you have a lot of players who are just obvious fits that that you say this guy has to be in the lineup all the time. You can't find five players like that um, who who do something so great on offense and defense um, to the point where they have to play, and you say this is the five-man lineup that he should be using. We don't have that. We have a lot of players with a lot of skills, but nobody – Again, once you get both offense and defense uh, defense skills, that's when you become a star. And he just doesn't have any, anything like that. So they have to mix mix and match. And when they mix and match, they're they're always lacking something, right? Um, so when you put in a five players that do that play defense really well, you might be not lacking shooting. When you put in a five man unit that has two or three offense creators, they've got guys who can penetrate the lane, um, a James Johnson type. He can penetrate the lane, but He's not the best three-point shooter. He had a uh, 34% two years ago. I didn't think that could be replicated, and it wasn't replicated last year, and I don't think you can count on it again next year. Um, so there's always missing pieces when you put in five guys into a rotation that do a lot of things well, but it's not a perfect rotation any any, way, any which way you play it. Even if you put in a lot of great shooters well, um, all of a sudden you're, you're starting to put in a Wayne Ellington well, defense becomes an issue. So So there's – The issue with the team is that there's nobody – there's not many people who can do both really, really well to the point where you say he has to play all the time.
1: Agreed. And something kind of – we've been talking about stars and and creation and all that. And something else I wanted to mention is that there aren't really that many guys other than Wade when he's really hot on this team offensively that really strike fear in the hearts of opposition. Like there are guys that can have hot games. I mean you could even think about Justice Winslow having that big one. I think he had 19 or 20 points in one of the games against the Sixers. But – even when he's hot, he's not really inspiring much fear in the opposition on the offensive end. Drogic can have games. I don't think he's really at that you know game-to-game dominant point anymore. So they're going to need that from somewhere because NBA teams are too talented to kind. You of, you can't really skate by regularly. You can from time to time, and Miami is well positioned to do it if anybody can. But that's still a lot to ask.
2: Right. Uh, and there's there's a lot more guys so that, that can do it that, than you mentioned, but nobody consistently, right? Um, yes, Justice Winslow a guy that I view as a point forward um, and more in the open court necessarily than in the half court. Um, so he can create you some offense uh, uh, in the open court. Uh, I think James Johnson can do it in short bursts. I mean, he can get to the rim basket and finish. When he's really on, he can do it as well as anybody. Um He's just very strong and powerful and he can make his way to the basket and create offense for himself. Um, but, but again, in short bursts, I think Goran Dragic can do it primarily in the first half more than the second half, historically speaking. Um, I think, you know, Tyler Johnson's not that kind of player. Um, Josh Richardson's not that kind of player. So, uh, you know, even, even Kelly Olinick has the ability to do that, right? He has the ability to, to either, he's very, very tall. So he has the ability to shoot right over somebody or, um, in certain spots, he has the ability to get by him um, and, and get to the basket and finish, but again, not consistently. So you're right. Um, they have to rely upon a lot of players doing it in short bursts, and if, 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 if that's not happening, then they struggle with their offense.
1: One big thing with Miami, just with every other team, is thinking about what are the key questions that will define this season. What are the key questions that they need to answer? And I'll start with with two that that sprung out to me. So one is what Dion Waiters do we see? I think he's a, you know he's so variable that he is a very important piece. And then is there anybody on Miami that ends up kind of aging out of their current? Level so like Goran Dragic, this is going to be his age thirty two season. James Johnson, age thirty one, Ellington, thirty one. I could see all those guys having good years, but if we reach the point where they're you know where they take a meaningful step back on either end of the floor, it be it changes the calculus for the Heat.
2: So uh, yes, I I don't see uh, Goran Dragic is a player who, who. I, I don't see him taking a meaningful step back. Actually, if you look at um, season over season, last season, I guess you could say was the meaningful step back, even though he made the All-Star team, even though he had a very good season, because he had such a good season the year before. Yes, I, I agree that, um, that Dion Waiters could take a meaningful step back if you compare him to the 16-17 season. Um, if you compare him to the 17-18 season, he played 30 games and all of them were injured. Uh, I think... <laughs> That's the type of player he can be, which which is very good at times, but um, but not consistent, and certainly not the player for as dominant as he can be in getting to the basket at times. You'd like him to see him be able to, to finish at the basket a little bit more consistently than he can. Um, so I don't know. I don't actually know where I was going with that. But um, well, do
1: you have any other big questions I, that you think are are central to what Miami defined Miami this year?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. Can can Bam Adebayo sort of take the next evolution of his game? That's going to be big because I do think that if he can, he will be the long-term, uh, call it center for this team. Can Justice Winslow um, take that step forward? Because right now I view him as sort of somebody with, with a big question mark. I know a lot of people in, in South Florida really, really like him, and I do too, but um, I, I don't think he, <laughs> I don't think he is quite at the point where he, he's one of the key guys. Unless he can show that he can, can consistently, um, create, create, um, you know, sort of high efficiency offense, uh, particularly with his shooting. Um, if he can prove that he can finish, not only at the three point line, we've discussed that at, at length, but, um, if you actually take a good look at him when he's down low, you know, even when he's three, four feet, five feet away from the basket, he's not particularly a guy who's going to con- convert a lot of those opportunities with good touch. So that will be a big key whether he can whether he can take the next step forward with that as well. Um, those two guys are the really really the guys that I want to see, see take a step forward, and of course Josh Richardson. I would love to see Josh Richardson get to play some time at shooting guard. It's probably not going to happen, but I would love to be able to see him do that, and I'd love to be able to see him take the next step in his game forward. Um, defensively, I, I don't think he needs any more steps. I think he's there. Uh, offensively, I'd love to be able to see him convert just a few more of uh, his three point attempts, and I'd love to be able to see him. Um, you know, do more of what he's done, which is more consistently step around a defender, take a uh, closing defender, take one or two dribbles and, and be able to hit that shot and become uh, a more lethal scorer in terms of overall points than he has in past season. So uh, those are three guys. I, again, it, the key questions for me are all about the youngsters, the, the sort of veteran players. Um, they are what they are. Um, hopefully James Johnson will recover from a, a season that maybe wasn't his best last year, particularly defensively. Um but um, I would like to see the youngsters, the guys who are the future of this team, and, and Kelly Linick as well, I think is, is a big, is a big uh, future piece for the team. I'd like to see them take the next next step forward. Those are the questions that I have.
1: I completely agree. And Miami's unusual contract structure makes that even more interesting because the veterans are under contract for a long time. So if that transition happens, they're still around unless they can find a trade for them. But again, you cross that bridge when you get to it. There isn't really, I wouldn't be worried about that at all. You just do what you need to do. But we can move on to. Prediction time, and so I like to give this to my guest as a kind of a 3 prong thing, which is what you expect is their most likely outcome, what you expect, and then also kind of a reasonable best case, not ridiculous, but a reasonable one, and then a reasonable worst case scenario for the year.
2: Okay, so so last season I I projected 45 wins and they got to 44. This season... (laughs) I don't see them being materially different, so I'm going to project 44 wins, which would produce a record of 44 and 38 as my predicted record. Um, I think they can probably get to maybe 48 and 32. I don't think they're a 50-win team, um, but I think they will. You know, if you ask me what it takes to get there, I think it'll be difficult because they were so good in the clutch last season. Um, and to, to be able to get there, they need to be able to replicate that success and they'll need to be able to replicate – and they'll be able to not lose bad games. I mean, they lost some bad games last year. Um, so teams they really should have beaten. So if they can not lose those games and, in addition, um, execute in the clutch, particularly offensively the way they did last year, then I think they can get to 48 wins. You forget I mean – People, people may forget, in the beginning of the season, it looked like they were going to get to the 48-49 wins, and then they sort of tapered off a little bit um, towards the second half of the season. So it is something that could happen, but they need to execute in a clutch, um, and they need to beat the teams that they should be beating. In terms of worst um, record I, I can foresee, it's sort of the inverse, I guess. 38-44, and 44, I guess, um, is, is something that I would say is a worst-case scenario. Is that likely? Probably not, simply because of effort, but... How, how do we get there? Dwayne Wade continues his um, downward trends in efficiency. Again, he can take over a game at times, but overall, um, if you look at his efficiencies over the past couple of seasons, it has had a downward trend. Dwayne Wade struggling could, could get you there if he's back. If not, again, Deion is not producing as well. Um, uh, Wayne Ellington taking a step back. Just, just All these players that we talked about, um, Wayne Ellington, uh, Bam Adebayo's of bios growth um, stalling out. Um, Asan Whiteside's dissatisfaction continues and, and, and he goes along the path that he did last season. So all those things can produce – and then ultimately, if the Heat has an opportunity to make a trade um, that gets him out of one of those contracts that we've been talking about that, that lasts for a couple more seasons, that, that could uh, – there, there's, there's player involvement there that, that could uh, produce negative um, results on the court. But um, I think you're looking at 44 wins somewhere in that neighborhood, and I think that's, that's pretty secure both on the upside and the downside. So that's where I'm
1: at. Clutch games and reliability of creating offense are going to be the definitive questions for Miami. As a point of reference, last year, this is using cleaning the glass, so filters out garbage time. Miami and Charlotte actually had pretty similar point differentials. Miami was plus 0.6. Charlotte was plus 0.2. Miami was a, was a pretty good clutch team. We already talked about that. Charlotte was appallingly bad. They, they actually won 5.5 fewer games than you would expect with their differential. And they won thirty six, so that's why I think your thirty eight or like thirty eight to forty is about right for the worst case scenario because you would even yeah, like that's an unreasonable worst case scenario. What happened to Charlotte in clutch games last year and Miami because they defend so reliably? I think they have that as a piece that that you can kind of count on more than what happened with Charlotte last year. So yeah, I mean, I could see them in that range. I don't expect it. I you said forty four. That's exactly where I wrote it down as well. I'll, I'll go a little bit more optimistic in terms of best case that they could get to like. Forty-nine, maybe you know, be even take another little step forward in clutch games. Remember last year, Dwayne Wade was only on the team for the last little bit of the year. If he comes back, he could be a positive for their clutch performance, at least on the offensive end. And then also because they have a lot, like one of the benefits of having a lot of capable players is that if if guys take steps forward and Spo is going to play them, then I think they could they could improve. And if guys are worse, they have guys that can step up and fill their role. So I think that they have a little bit more, you know, maybe maybe they could do. it. But again, yeah, the the range on this team is pretty narrow, and I would say that it, like we're talking best and worst case scenarios to only be ten games apart. But the more realistic scenarios, I think, are even tighter than that. And, you know, like for me. I wouldn't be surprised I, – I would expect this team to be somewhere between 42 and, like, 47. Like, I, it, w- it would probably be pretty surprising to me if they were outside that range even.
2: Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, yes, I think it, there's a tight range. Uh, on, on the top end, you, you went to 49. I went to 48. I can see it. I, the, the, the issue was I don't see this team being a 50-win team. But um, I, I'll, I'll give myself the extra one as well to go along with you and say 49. But, yes, the, the range is probably going to be pretty tight.
1: Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing with this team. And while they are a lot of established commodities, both as individual players and as a collective, I mean, we know that Miami's going to defend. We have a pretty good idea of their offensive identity at this point. But I, I am excited to see really what happens. You brought this up with their young players because that's going to define this. Like if they're going to really exceed these expectations, I think it's going to be by bam – outpacing Hassan Whiteside and actually getting those minutes or by Justice Winslow taking a big step forward. I, I don't expect to see another Wayne Ellington of a, a veteran guy who's kind of bounced around in his career, who just has a career best year at 30.
2: Well, so uh, let me just add one thing to that. So I, 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 don't, I think this is a team that will make the playoffs. I, again, the downside is, is, is lower likelihood to me. I think this team will make the playoffs and I, I tend to think this team, just like last year, will will get bounced out of the first round of the playoffs. I think the upside is one one victory and then out in the second round. But uh, to me, this is more about the future than this season. So I would like that's why I keep saying all the youngsters. I'd like to see them take a step forward because, yeah, there's some variability as to how we'll finish this season. But to me, this season is more about setting up the future. Um, so I would like to see the young guys get more playing time. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in, in some situations. I do think that, for example, a white is going to get um, uh, his starting starting role. So I think um, Bam Adebayo might not get as many minutes as he otherwise could. Um, I think James Johnson will get a lot of minutes um, because he deserves them. There, there, are, there are veteran players who deserve them. But um, if you're looking for the future, because I think the next year, this season and next season is sort of locked in. Um, even if the Heat were able to get rid of uh, a player next next summer, um, they still don't have any cap space, so there's not much that can be done. So these next two seasons are sort of what they are. So I would like this season to be more about building for the future and getting minutes to the guys who can really develop into something that where we can see what the future could be, and then we can see what pieces we need to build around them. That's the way I kind of kind of view this season. So it's it's less about the total number of wins and more about the development of certain players to me.
1: I completely agree with that. And something else to bring up here, we talked about our narrow range for Miami. I also expect that range to be enough to make the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. You know, like it, it's with Cleveland taking a big step back without LeBron, Detroit and Charlotte are very inconsistent. Like, I, I said it's between, you know, I think I said 42 and 47. I think 42 wins is enough to make it in.
2: Yes, I would be very, very surprised they didn't make the playoffs. Uh, I, I do think they'll make the playoffs. And, and like I said, I, I think the the upside is a first-round victory in the playoffs. The more realistic scenario is make the playoffs, get a win or two, um, just like last season, and uh, and move on to the next season.
1: Is there anything else you think we need to discuss when talking about where Miami's going this year?
2: No, I mean, I um, uh, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, this season was, was very uh, this summer was very boring for the Heat. Not a lot not not a lot happened, so there's there's not really a lot of to uh, to discuss this um this podcast as opposed to maybe in the past where, where more exciting things happened. So uh, I think this is, I mean it's pretty much the same, exact same teams came back last year. So the, the 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 scenario here is get 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 some guys healthy. Whiteside get, get them healthy, um, and um, DM Waiters get them healthy, and see what this team really can do, um, uh, and go from there.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see who progresses from where they were. I think that's going to be the main thing that I watch for Miami this year, and – I, I think there's a fundamental difference with the way that I watch them and people who, who follow them day in, day out, because they're a nice change of pace if you're watching a lot of everyone else, but then they're very similar to themselves if you're primarily watching the Heat. But I, I they're refreshing for me because they execute so well and they're so intense on defense that you go, oh, man, imagine if other teams were like this all the time.
2: Yeah, and I will say something, um, just because I think some things get a little bit misconstrued in terms of the, the sort of the front office and, and how they um, – how they've evolved the roster over the last um, few years. I think, I, I think, um, you know, there was some contracts um, that were issued last summer that maybe were a little bit questionable, but I think you have to view everything in context. I think going back to several seasons ago now, um, when Tyler Johnson's contract was, was offered by the Nets, the offer sheet and the Heat matched, I think that might have been, um, you know, in retrospect, the thing that uh, maybe a little bit of a mistake. I don't necessarily think Pat Riley wanted to do that. I, I'm just reading uh, the tea leaves here, and I think um, Mickey Harrison might have said, we don't want to lose the player for nothing. Um, and that sort of um, sort of tied up the Heat as as the seasons were on. Remember, that 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 um, opera sheet created a situation where the Heat had some cap space the next two seasons, um, um, or one season, because one of them was, was tied up with, with that particular season. But they had the next summer to, to really make something happen, and they tried, and they just weren't able to. Um, so I think, um, Tyler Johnson's contract, um, blasting up forced the heat last season not to roll over cap space as they had been doing season after season. They had to do something then. And that's why you saw all those contracts. Now you can question the length of some of those contracts, um, four years to, to James Johnson, four years to Deion Waiters. I still don't fully understand why they did that with his ankle injury. Obviously they thought it was further along than it was. Um, but, um. Um, I think they were, were basically from a cap space perspective forced to, to, to make a splash last last summer when they couldn't get uh, uh, the, the star player that they were looking for. They, they went all in with their, with, with, with their own players. But um, it, it, it's caused us to be in a situation now where this season is, is what it is. Next season is going to be, unless they can do something spectacular – um will be more of the same, and then we'll be looking for two years from now. And I do think we have a very excellent um, salary cap guru in Andy Ellisberg. What he did in the 2015-16 season was nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, say what you want about the contracts from last summer, that, that he was able to fit it in with with structuring um, um, unlikely bonuses and likely bonuses and coordinating the signing of the contracts in a specified period of time. That was that was top notch. So uh, has, um, the team has a very good um, um, sort of fun office team in Pat Riley and Andy Ellisberg who can uh, hopefully, uh, you know, maybe not next this this coming season or the next one, but hopefully in 2021 we'll be able to utilize all the cast space they could have to be able to to make this team into a powerhouse.
1: That is very yeah. important context to put in there. I agree with a lot of that I, discussion. Actually, came up a little bit on a podcast that I did recently, and it was the Tyler Johnson contract, just kind of putting a putting a clock on them that was very challenging. But yeah, what Elsberg has done is absolutely incredible, and yeah, really, I think this is a two year evaluation period to figure out what Miami's going to do because they have Whiteside, Johnson, drogić all expire in twenty twenty, and then maybe they need to wait another year because of Johnson and Waiters and everybody else, but. At some point, they're going to have another big opportunity to go at this, and I'm very excited to see what they do.
2: Yeah, which is why I would like, when that point comes, I would like to to see Josh Richardson have evolved his game into a, into the player I think he could become. He's already a great player right now, and I think he can evolve even evolve even further. I'd like to see Bam Adebayo. This is why I keep saying the youngsters are the more, most critical things for me because I'd like to see them all get the playing time they need to, to evolve their games to the point where when that time does come where he can actually make a splash in free agency, they are the players who I, I think they could become with increased playing time in the next couple of years. Well, I think
1: that's a great place to end it, so thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Sure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again to Albert Namad for taking the time. If you are a Heat fan or interested in his writing on Miami, that is Heathoops.com is his website. You can also follow him on Twitter for Miami Insight. He is an amazing follow for Cap C B A stuff for those of you who somehow are not following me yet. And his handle there is Albert Namad, A-L-B-E-R-T, N-A-H-M-A-D. Still have the Suns podcast to come, but first a message from Indochino.
3: So a big thanks to Indochino because they actually gave me the tux for my wedding. Looked awesome. I was able to customize the lapels. I got a a three-piece vest as well. They gave me the tie. The shirt fit perfectly. I was able to get a shawl collar that I thought was pretty cool. And uh, certainly, I was absolutely no match in the style department for my beautiful bride. But with Indochino, I was able to do the best that I could. And exciting news for Indochino, which makes suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort. They're now introducing made-to-measure chinos. I was really waiting for them to do this, and now those are just $79. I mean, that's less expensive than you're going to pay for something off the rack. And if you're like me, you really need made-to-measure pants to fit well. And, of course, they still are in the suit business as well. And this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for only $359 at Indochino.com. Enter that familiar Capspace code at checkout. Shipping is free. Once again, Indochino.com. Use the promo code Capspace to get any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. Let them know with that Capspace code that you came from us.
1: I will echo that Nate's suit, his tux, looked absolutely awesome at the wedding, and thanks to Indochino for making that happen. Second conversation of this episode is with Michael Schwartz. He is a sports content researcher at ESPN. Many of you will also be familiar with his work at Valley of the Suns. He and I go very in-depth. On Phoenix. I'm paranoid that they're going to make a move between when we recorded this and when it comes out on the point guard, but it serves its purpose in and of itself and there's no control over that. So hope you really enjoy it. I love talking with him. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, great to be here. I'm excited to talk about the Suns because they are a dramatically different team than last year, which is good for a variety of reasons. Yes. But but the place that I want to start is not the place I think a lot of other people will, but there's a reason for it, and that's with the head coaching change. And it will be an important part of this season, really, whatever their roster turns out, however the season goes, is just what adding Igor Kokoshkov to this mix, his imprint on the team, because... That will He, he will be a, a massive force on the direction of this franchise.
4: And I think, you know, you look at this offseason, they made a lot of moves signing Trevor Ariza, obviously had the number one overall pick uh, and drafted DeAndre Ayton. But I think Kakashkov might be the biggest addition they made just because, A, the culture needed to be reset, and, B, they really haven't had a, a great head coach in a long time, even a good head coach probably since uh, Alvin Gentry back in – 2010, 2012. So um, I think when you think about the kind of offense that he's run uh, for Slovenia, certainly, and even the kind of offenses he's been a part of with the Suns, obviously with Utah, he had a big part in helping out some of their guards. I think that what he's going to do is going to be enormous.
1: And we've seen some indications of where that might go with how open the Suns have been about not having a ton of traditional point guards on their roster. I mean, I think of Donovan Mitchell as more of a point guard than Devin Booker, but I am open to the possibility that Devin Booker just has untapped potential as a playmaker, as a ball handler that we haven't seen so far because he hasn't had the opportunity. And so Kokoshkov, one of the elements that I really like that we've seen from him is running an offense where it's it's more democratic than a lot of, of NBA offenses, and Mm -hmm. I mean that was even true going back, like his Slovenia work is really informative for this, and using what players do well and so that allows you to, to kind of mix and match a little bit differently than some teams where it needs to be regimented because the point guard does X, Y, and Z and that isn't you know that that might end up being important now and but it's also incredibly important with how Ryan McDonough or Ryan McDonough's successor however this goes builds this mm-hmm. team out from here
4: yeah and i think if you already see the imprint from the off season um, they get the the big role man and DeAndre Ayton and that's pretty much all they had him do in summer league obviously you hope the number 1 overall pick shows a little bit more than that And then this offseason, which I know we'll get into, is all about shooting, shooting, shooting. And that's something the Suns did not have very much of last season outside of Devin Booker. And I guess Troy Daniels, if you consider him. But uh, in a Kakashkov offense, that's vital. And we're already seeing that
1: happen. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on what the Suns were last year. I mean, they mm-hmm. were awful. We, we know yes. they were awful, and there were some perverse incentives in play, as there often are, especially in the last year before lottery reform. So, in terms of the the aggregate, we don't really need to think about it much. But for, for you, moving forward, what are there any significant takeaways from last year that, that help inform this season and beyond? Well, I think it's
4: just that Devin Booker made incredible strides as a playmaker. I mean, you think about what he was when the Suns drafted him you're thinking about a standstill shooter somebody who was just an awesome six man at kentucky who you leave him open he's going to make the shot and out of necessity because the Suns didn't have a real point guard for most of last season he took over a lot more of that playmaking burden and i think having those reps at such a young age even if hopefully he is more of a shooting guard than a point guard that's going to help tremendously especially in like what you said a very democratic offense that igor runs
1: Right. And that is a, a, a skill set in terms of handling, in terms of judgment, whether you want to talk about pick and roll, attacking closeouts, whatever, that you can apply to other, other elements. And actually, it's something that often you benefit from, even if you move from being a primary to, to a secondary, just because it's easier. You know, you don't have as, have as much necessarily to do. And with Booker, I mean, this is going to be a very big year for him. We should talk about the uh, what happened a, a little bit ago, the announcement that he had to undergo surgery because of a hand mm-hmm. issue. And the current projection, it was six weeks at the time of the surgery which would mean he would come back early in the regular season and hopefully it doesn't linger hopefully it gets straight through and they're going to need a lot from him on the offensive end depending on how Kakashkov structures not only the starting on it but just who plays alongside Booker in the backcourt the whole season
4: yeah there's no question and it's a good thing that it happened now because uh, without Booker as we saw last season this team just doesn't have much offensive firepower next season will be a little bit different but he's he's the engine
1: what are you expecting from him? Not necessarily, like, I, I guess I guess the best thing, boot, is, is what are you expecting from him in terms of role? I mean, it's something that I've been trying to figure out for the entire offseason, especially after they traded Brandon Knight, but even before, because we didn't know what Brandon Knight was going to be this year, we still don't, is whether he's going to play with, with Shaq Harrison. What I, I, We know Kakashkov is comfortable having him run the offense because that's just how the team is structured, and the coach obviously provides input. So are you expecting him to, the, the main part of the season, to be running the show and the team's leading scorer?
4: Uh, Kakashkov has actually said he doesn't want him to be the primary point guard. Um, at this point, you look at the roster, that's probably going to happen at certain points, especially in crunch time, just out of necessity. If you want your five best players in the court, uh, one of them certainly right now isn't a point guard. So... Uh, I think that long term, the hope is that he is that secondary playmaker and that you can be running him off screens and even doing some of the Clay Thompson stuff, which he wasn't able to do as much last season since he had to do everything with the ball. So again, I think that it's more the reps last year were helpful, but long term, his role is not to be a point guard.
1: That's good. I, I think it, it's also healthier to go at it with that approach, and then if he blossoms, then you work with it from there. And I think that's kind of what happened with the Jazz and Donovan Mitchell last year was that mm-hmm. they had Ricky Rubio, they traded for Ricky Rubio, and nobody would ever expect a, a rookie guard coming in to really run the show the way that Donovan Mitchell did. And then they, you can still use that, as I said, as a, as a secondary, as an ancillary playmaker, you still get a lot of those benefits. And so going at it with that approach and it is totally worthwhile. And so that leads into another interesting question, which we're not going to get the answer on this year uh, anybody who thinks we are is, is mistaken with the big decisions that phoenix made on draft night and so the first one of those of course is drafting mm-hmm. deandre and number one overall which means they chose him over everyone else and then also the other just gargantuan move they made was giving up miami's unprotected 2021 first to move up to secure Mikhail Bridges, and I'm fascinated to see how he fits into this whole picture as well. Yeah, I mean, starting
4: with Aiton, um, to me the question, and I I'm actually went to U of A, so I saw a lot of Aiton last year. Uh, the question is, are his defensive instincts can be better? Because the guy has all the tools. Uh, he could be the perfect modern big. He can step out and shoot it. Apparently in his workout with the Suns, he was uh, – hitting three-pointers all over the place. Uh, He's a dominant rebounder already. That's the one thing that I'm completely confident he's going to be above average in at the NBA level. But it's just, can he be the guy playing with four wings who's going to anchor the defense and that you're afraid to go into the paint because DeAndre Ayton's there? Or is it going to be what we saw at U of A at times where um, guys are getting easy baskets just because of lack of awareness? So that's the thing to me offensively. There's no question he's going to be a very, very good player. But is he going to be able to have that same kind of impact defensively? Because really, that's what you need these days out of your center more than anything.
1: And I think Summer League was a good reminder of why that is the case, and it's because... In the even in the modern NBA with the improved floor spacing and Phoenix will definitely have better spacing in the regular season than they did in summer league. But it can be hard to get the ball to the interior. They're very much dependent talents offensively. Even the best centers are pretty much dependent talents offensively. And so then you can still use that. And especially if Ayton can eventually be a pick and pop guy. I remember seeing him. I actually saw him play a couple of times in high school. And yeah. his jump shot looked you know mechanic. It's mechanically sound. It looks like he has a lot of confidence in it. So I'm. I'm very intrigued to see what he can do on the defensive end because that's really... I mean, generally speaking, that's where centers make their money. That's where they really make their impact. And to see whether somebody who at least to this point, has built his reputation more on the offensive end, though he has plenty of physical capability defensively. To see yep. how that squares up right now is going to be a huge question.
4: Yeah, because, I mean, physically, he's, he's everything you want. Um, athletically, he's you know he's off the charts. And if, if you could build a modern center, it would be DeAndre Ayton. It's just mentally, is he going to be able to understand the defensive concepts and do all of that? Um, Mikel Bridges... I mean, it's a really interesting roll of the dice. Uh, Like you alluded to earlier, we don't know if Ryan McDonough will be around to finish this rebuilding project. And you feel like this was a guy he wanted to get in there and and not save those chips for the next guy. And Bridges is really a guy who looks like a perfect role player in in this era. He's an incredible shooter. I think he shot 43. He shot 43.5% on six threes per game last year at Villanova. Uh, Among the leaders nationally, he's long. He's going to be able to guard multiple positions. And if you could talk about a guy uh, in this era, that's exactly what you want uh, in a role player. So I think he could end up being kind of a star role player and the perfect glue for this Aiton Booker core.
1: Right. And it makes sense. To, I mean, guys like him, if Bridges becomes an actualized version of what those of us who like him saw, whether or not he ends up being like a star or a central player, it doesn't, it matters, of course, because stars are, are incredibly valuable. But there there is a place for swingman sized players, especially if they can defend multiple positions, which I believe that Bridges can. There is a place for them in the league because, simply put, there are not enough, you know, six foot six to six foot nine or even six foot five guys in the league to kind of fill all those spots and so if you can defend lots of people if you can fill a role offensively it's a valuable player and I so so I'm interested to see how he fits in on the Suns team because they're probably going to need some time to figure out the big pieces I mean Booker is almost definitely one of those and then we'll see what happens with Aiden but it is kind of fun to have a a support player who is coming in at the same time and can kind of grow with those guys
4: And it's also interesting, on draft night, he said that his comp is Trevor Ariza. And who do the Suns go out and sign? First minutes of free agency, Trevor Ariza. So that's another—he's got the perfect veteran mentor to learn from. Um, As for the other side of the trade, did they give up too much? I mean, again, we won't know that for several years. It's the old roll of the dice. If you think that the Miami Heat are a solid enough organization that— they're never going to fall into the, depth of the depths of the lottery, then uh, it's certainly worth it. If, if they ended up trading the 16 pick and the 16 pick, I would do that every time. Um, obviously, we've seen unprotected picks uh, really bite the team trading them in the butt in the past. So, um it's it's certainly concerning i would have loved to have seen a top three or a top five protection on that that would have made it uh, a great trade for me as now as of now you've just kind of got to sweat it out and is this going to look really bad in a couple of years
1: right and the uncertainty there is important and also it's going to be fascinating because miami will probably have a big free agent opportunity between now and then like that 2020 offseason and miami's summers when they have cap space can be an adventure i mean in a lot of different directions 20 10 is the most obvious one but i mean even what they did in 2016 was that 2017 i guess that was 2017 was also significant in terms of bringing you know striking out on hayward and then get yeah it was 17 getting all those other guys so mm-hmm. i mean there's a there's a gamble either way and and in some ways that's a part of the trade that i like more from the sun's perspective than a lot of people sure there's downside risk as you mentioned of giving up an unprotected pick also with a lot of reform i mean there's there's a risk there now yep. too but betting on the Heat as an organization is probably one of the better ones considering their consistency and also because assuming Pat Riley is still in place then, which maybe he's not, I, I don't exactly know, that they'll be looking, if they have an opportunity to make the team better, that they will do it, that they're not going to, to lean into that because those are in some ways are the more dangerous ones is when it's an organization that is going to have a choice to make. And so it, it, the funniest one of that is Brooklyn, where, but once they yeah. sent their own pick, it was a sunk cost. So it, it didn't make sense necessarily to push for the finish line if you kind of know where you are so i i'm very interested in that and that gets into one of the big questions that i have for this team which is balancing out their perimeter rotation figuring out who's yeah. going to play because you have a couple of different forces in play so one is wh- what physically what position devin booker plays like do you have another what kind of other guard do you have next to him but then the other big part is they added in two veterans who the expectation I mean in Reese's case, he has to start like there there isn't any ambiguity there, and with Ryan yes. Anderson, you can play it in a couple different directions, but it'll definitely get minutes and then then whether he starts and so you have those guys that's you know significant talents still able to contribute, of course, at this point in their career, though I would argue that both of them are probably post prime in different ways at at this juncture that doesn't mean they're bad, it just means they've been better than I would expect them to be, but then you also have t j Warren Josh Jackson. Mikhail Bridges, depending on what position Devin Booker plays, Devin Booker, and then maybe some of Troy Daniels, Devon Reed, and that's a lot of mouths to feed, yep. especially because a lot of those mouths are young, and you want to figure out what you have in them.
4: And then even if you're playing a lot of those guys at the four, Dragan Bender, where's sure. he going to play? So yeah, I mean, that is the question. They There's no doubt they have one too many wing player and one too few point guard, so uh you would think at some point a trade would happen to even that out. I mean, I know we've heard a lot of discussions even on, on – uh, today we're hearing that uh, Beverly is the main option for the Suns, according to Shams. So uh, I don't know how they're going to figure that out. There's going to be somebody unhappy. I feel like it could be TJ Warren just because he doesn't fit the Kakashkov system as well as some of the other guys since – he averaged a career-high 1.3 assists per game. Yes, seriously, that was a career-high, and he shot 22% on threes. So I don't know if he's going to be the perfect fit, but he's a guy who scored almost 20 points per game on pretty efficient two-point shooting. So he's a guy, in theory, you want playing. Um, that's, that is the question with this team. Uh, Ryan McDonough went all in on getting a lot of versatile wings uh, which is nice because it, it's good to have options as opposed to last year when they are playing a lot of G-leaguers in spots, but um, you feel like there's going to be somebody unhappy or possibly multiple somebodies
1: yeah it could even be more than more than two I mean just depending on how all this shakes out there, there are a lot of different things and, and certainly injuries and you know just ups and downs will we'll clarify some of this there will be guys that just have an opportunity to play because even if they're on the short stick early on so how they square all that is, is going to be incredibly important in terms of maintaining it but also you want to make sure that as a young team that is hopefully going to be better next year and beyond than they are right now getting your players in the in a reasonable position to evaluate them because Phoenix with their own draft picks, they don't have as much cap space moving forward partially because they made the decision to extend Devin Booker mm-hmm. but they still have a lot of I call them team building tools to work with moving forward and so that makes it incredibly important to know what you have and that's not necessarily even to trade some of those guys or anything else, it's just what do you prioritize in the draft, what do you prioritize in free agency and so want to make sure not only with the guys that are you're figuring out where they are in the role but also what is Devin Booker? And so you want to make sure that you have cogent talent around him, around DeAndre Ayton to see what they are. And so it's going to be a big challenge for Krakash not only to keep all these guys happy, but to make sure that the front office is comfortable with their understanding of all these players when push comes to shove.
4: And that's what's interesting to me about the question of what would you trade for a veteran point guard in a vacuum? You'd say it would be crazy to give up any first round pick because That's not moving the Suns closer to a championship. It may not even be moving them closer to making the playoffs this year. So why would you give up a first-round pick when you're still a young team? But if you could bring in a guy like Beverly who could set the culture uh, defensively in particular and kind of sort out some of those roles, and now all of a sudden instead of playing with a bunch of G League point guards, which the Suns essentially were last year and could be this year, G League point guards and rookie point guards, um that could be worth the first round pick, even if in our the way we usually think about uh assets it's it wouldn't be.
1: That's a really good point. And it also depends with some of those, even if it's a, a rental, the, whether they feel they have a chance to retain that guy. Because as I mentioned, Phoenix, less cap space next summer. Depending on what happens, one of the really interesting components of the trade they made with the Rockets was Ryan Anderson decreasing his guarantee. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's going to matter because you know they, he lowered his guarantee by $6 million. But so then basically you're sitting there going, well, would we rather pay him $15 million not to play for us or pay, 20, pay him 21 to play for us? So that'll be a factor. But so having bird rights, let's say, on somebody like Patrick Beverly could be very useful. That said, I, I think that they also need to figure out really what kind of players make sense. So, so you have the thing, Patrick Beverly, I think of him more as a defensive player who can create rather than a creator mm-hmm. who plays defense. And that is, it's a question that's worth answering, you know, because then theoretically you could put more on Devin Booker's shoulders, you could do a couple different things. So you kind of need to figure out, well, is the, how close is this person to potentially being the right answer? And then what questions are they answering, even if they're not the right answer?
4: Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, like you said, defensively, I think this team would make huge strides from the worst defensive team in the league last year. If you add a Beverly and, a Re- and an Ariza uh, and even a Mikel Bridges to what they had last year, but then your same old thing offensively, you're still putting a lot on Devin Booker's shoulders, like you said.
1: I don't think there are really any concerns about how Trevor Ariza fits in on this team, are there?
4: None. I mean, that, he's the perfect fit. I mean, I think he would fit on any team. But this team in particular, they desperately needed the shooting, they desperately needed that veteran voice, and granted they've had that with Tyson Chandler and and Jared Dudley the last couple of years, but a guy who's going to be playing among the team leaders in minutes and is going to be out there in crunch time, which wasn't always the case with Chandler and Dudley, I think he's going to be invaluable just for that.
1: Anderson's a little bit of a tougher fit, partially because of his defensive yep. limitations. But as long as he's cool with being a piece of the puzzle, which is certainly a larger role than it looked like he was going to have long term with the Rockets, I think they can make it work. I, I'm just, I think that it's just going to be a little bit of a challenge because he, he doesn't have equity with the Suns, but he certainly has a more substantial career than a lot of the other guys that the Suns will consider playing at the Fort.
4: And it was really interesting how excited he was to leave a team that almost beat the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, you know, a couple of shots away in game seven. To go to a team that was the worst team in the NBA. So, um, But from the Phoenix side, yeah, the, the floor spacing aspect, the fact that the Suns were last in the league in three-point shooting percentage, adding a guy like Ryan Anderson, who doesn't just space the floor to the three-point line, but even a few feet beyond that uh, to create some of the space that just wasn't there last year, I think will be valuable, even if we all know what his defensive shortcomings are, particularly deep in the playoffs, which we probably don't need to worry about this year in Phoenix.
1: I would think not, but that leads into a question that I think is, is really fascinating with this team, and we we can there are a lot of guys that it's obvious due to age, but who do you expect to be meaningfully better from what they were last year, and who do you expect to take a step back? I mean,
4: honestly, the first guy that comes to mind is Devin Booker, uh, just because of what he'll be playing around. Uh, last year, he had to take some of the toughest shots in the league, according to Second Spectrum. And that's obvious just because there wasn't much else on the on the floor. You know, there, w- there weren't other floor spacers with him outside of a Troy Daniels type. Um, there wasn't a whole lot else for the defense to key in on. So I think just playing in Igor's system, uh, another year of experience, especially a year in which he got a lot of those um, on-ball reps, and I think you're going to see a player whose shooting percentage goes up and really takes that next step.
1: He's definitely a good one. I hope that we see more from Josh Jackson this year. I'm concerned yeah. because my biggest my biggest issue with him last year was shot selection, and Summer League wasn't any better, but maybe they can use that as a as a teaching, teachable moment moving forward, because the Suns are are probably going to be in a good place. I mean, they're they're certainly going to need more talent, where those players, and Bridges is actually more of a model for Jackson to follow based on what he was at Nova, uh, of being comfortable as as an NBA role player. And it's a challenge. I mean, Josh Jackson, going back, I saw him play at Prolific Prep. Like, he was that, you know, he was that guy. He was a top five recruit in the country. He was the definitive player on his high school team. And it's a big adjustment. To go from that to being more of a support guy, and you know, hitting open shots when they're there, and you know, having it be a bad thing, taking bad shots being actually more of a negative for a a smaller usage guy because then you're taking them away from your better offensive players. And so, doing that, engaging a little bit more defensively, he certainly had some moments, but I'd like to Mm -hmm. see those moments come closer together. I think would be a good way of putting it. So I expect him to be better. I don't know how much better, and that's going to be one of the definitive questions for this season for them, especially because he's going to be battling with more stab- like with so many guys for minutes so i think the the margin for him is tougher than than it you would expect for somebody taken as high as he was last year like this isn't you know like it's not like with bender or something like that where they've had a couple years to establish and everything else but you see that with jackson and then i mean in terms of being worse there aren't too many guys on the negative side of the age curve on this team i mean anderson didn't have a particularly good year last year i could see chandler being you know marginalized but that's i don't think that really affects things too much One one thing i do want to keep an eye on is the balance between on the floor between Chandler and Rashawn Holmes, the Suns clearly brought in Rashawn Holmes because they want him. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a circumstance of just he wasn't salary filler in any sort of trade. They also made that corresponding move with the Brooklyn Nets, where they gave up a second round pick to swap Jared Dudley and Darrell Arthur. So. They went to get him, but that was after they already got Aiton. So I'm maybe what they're thinking is Holmes is the is the either the back is the backup because he's a free agent after this year, and then Chandler is more the mentor. But I, I want to see how all that works out.
4: Yeah, I agree. I mean, they they gave up what could be a valuable second round pick to to get Rashawn Holmes, and didn't even give up that much salary when you talk about the Dudley Arthur swap. So I think they do see Holmes as the long term backup five. And then another guy who you did briefly mention, Dragon Bender, isn't even 21 years old yet. So I feel like he gets written off a little bit sometimes, but he's so young. He's over a year younger than Mikel Bridges, you know. So he hasn't shown a whole lot. He needs to get stronger. Obviously, but he already has one definable NBA skill as a seven-footer. He can shoot threes. Um, I've always liked his vision, and I think playing in a Igor Kakashkov system is certainly gonna be a lot better than what he's done in the past with Earl Watson in particular. So um, I am certainly not ready to throw out Dragon Bender. I still own some stock in. Um, Dragon Bender Island, and and we'll see. I think this is a, a huge year for him because if we don't see that huge improvement, then it starts getting to the point, even though we'll still be incredibly young and just 21 years old, it'll be start starting to think of when will it happen.
1: So you talked about having that island stock. One of the considerations with Bender is that big $5.9 million option that he has for next season, but the way rookie scale options work is that you have to decide this year. Fortunately, the Suns get actually the beginning part of the regular season because they moved the season up and moved the extension deadline up, but did not move up the option deadline. So they actually get a little bit, I don't know how much Bender is going to play in the beginning of the regular season, but at least they get a little bit more time. So I'm guessing based on your comments that you would pick up that option, but how are you feeling about that right now?
4: Yeah, I would pick it up just because again, he is so young and I want to see him in this system. Um, I would say at this point, I'd say it's 75-25, even though that, that they do pick it up. Um, even though cap space, like you've said, could be tight next offseason, and the Suns might try to make moves such as stretching Anderson to um, get close to max cap space, I think that it's it's too early to cut bait. And that um, it, to me, it seemed like they were going to pick up one of Chris and Bender, and that decision seems to have been made with the— brian anderson trade
1: it certainly does and something else we didn't mention about that trade is D'Anthony Melton and I yeah. really like D'Anthony Melton. He brings an interesting skill set, not only for the Suns but just in bro- more broadly. Where I think of him more as a as a two guard defensively, but somebody who can defend multiple positions, who's strong, and I think strength is an underrated attribute, especially for perimeter defenders, because generally that leads to versatility. You could think about what Dion Waiters has sometimes been able to pull off, and various other guys over over time. And Melton, he's comfortable with the ball in his hands, but I don't think he needs it. Like because if he needed it, that would become a problem. Because because there are other better offensive players. And so he's probably, you know, we'll see where he gets in terms of the starter rotation kind of paradigm. But I really like the idea of getting him in because the Suns are still figuring all this out. And so if he becomes an answer to a part of the question, then you can use that moving forward.
4: Yeah, and for all those reasons, I think he could be a perfect complement to Devin Booker in a backcourt. You could have Melton take on the tougher defensive assignment every night. And then offensively, like you said, he doesn't need the ball. The question is, can he become a good enough standstill shooter to play off a of Booker? I know he's been uh, working really hard the last year, really, when he hasn't been able to play college basketball. And when looking at the draft, he was certainly one of the guys I pinpointed as as a great Booker partner. So, I mean, I've talked a lot about the Suns not having any point guards, but they do have two really interesting rookie point guards, second round pick, sure but in D'Anthony Melton and Cobo, So um, the Suns' hope has got to be that one of those guys hits as a long-term option. Uh, maybe not the starter, certainly right away, but it's not like they're completely bare of point guard talent like they were last year after the Bledsoe trade. Those are two pretty intriguing prospects. It's just for this year you don't want to rely on rookies, certainly.
1: Right, and they also, you know, not in in that conversation, but as a part of their point guard rotation, Shaq Harrison, I thought he he showed me something not only last season, but also in Summer League this year. And he has two more years that are pretty team-friendly. I mean, so this year, I think he's lightly guaranteed for a long time I fully expect him to be guaranteed I I, unless they trade him I think he will be a part of the team and then I think next year is fully non-guaranteed so that's a a really big benefit for the Suns and so in the long run my instinct is Harrison is more of a a backup than a starter but he's still a good guy to have around and to have him at the minimum for another two years and then restricted free agency after that it's a lot of bites at the apple and so it's entirely possible that none of those end up being the guy but you're going to need 48 good minutes at point that's something I've talked about a lot over the last couple of years. The Brooklyn Nets are a really good example of this. Last year's Suns are a really good example of this, where an offense is really dependent on how, how often you have capable shot creation, ball handling. And so yeah. just getting to that basic threshold, even if it's not an amazing 48 minutes, just 48 competent minutes, is a huge thing.
4: Yeah, there's no question about that. And the Suns learned that a really hard way at last year when they were shuttling through G League point guards
1: sort of along similar lines, but I think the differences could be interesting with this team. Still have predictions and plenty more with Michael Schwartz, but first, a message from SeatGeek.
3: So SeatGeek is the oldest sponsor of the Dunked On Basketball NBA podcast back in fact when it was just called the Dunked On Basketball podcast. And they've continued to support the show for well over three years now. Summer of 2015 is when they first came on because they're getting great results. Dunked On listeners use SeatGeek because it saves them time and it saves them money they aggregate ticket selling sites together so you don't have to go to a bunch of different sites I got these sumo wrestling tickets in Japan I had to go it was like going back in time 15 years and I had to go to all these different sites and I remember just how stressful it was before SeatGeek came into my life and then they grade every ticket based on value as well so even if you're not familiar with the venue the market you look for that big green dot and you know that you're getting the best value ticket that's available don't forget of course to use that cap space code to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase us. Once again, that code is cap space. Easy to remember. We talk about cap space all the time here on the program. Let them know with that cap space code that you came from us.
1: This is kind of thinking a little bit more outside of like the Suns fan base. So you can do it in that way if you want. But just, who do you? Th- are there players on the Suns that you think are meaningfully better or worse than the kind of popular conception of them?
4: I mean the if you go to Twitter it feels like I can't log onto that website without opposing fan bases versus Suns fan bases discussing uh the merits of Devin Booker. Uh so I we don't need to get into that too much here, but I think that people who watch him every day and um like for example the uh, did you see the Suns at Philly game last
1: year? Yes, I believe that I did.
4: That that was the game where I mean that was the best I've ever seen Devin Booker play. I mean, he was hitting shots from 30 feet with Embiid in his face. And to me, that was like the, the peak ceiling potential, almost like the, the Kobe swagger, but just with even better long distance shooting. So I think that Suns fans see games like that. And, um, you look at the stats and obviously the teams win loss and there's kind of a disconnect there. And then I guess for me, it's, it's still just Bender. Um, maybe it starts because I did like him in the pre-draft process, but I do see a a seven-foot skilled player who can shoot and who has some defensive versatility. Um, He's certainly been cooked at times by point guards, but I think he could be a guy who can slide his feet and stay with some smaller players. And I still see a guy with some potential, whereas I know other people I've talked to watch Dragan Bender and it's like, what are you thinking? This guy isn't even an NBA player. Um, so I think he's another one where there's a bit of a disconnect
1: i've soured a little bit on bender over time partially because i i don't think he moves as well defensively as i hoped and that was always going yeah. to be a big part of his value and then offensively he's fine i mean he's, I, again i wanted him to be more than he is but it's not it's not catastrophic and so i'd be I, what i'm learning from him because i was high on booker i think i had him third in that class is just how tight them how tight the margins are on big men who don't have that definitive skill and even if they yeah. do have that definitive skill i mean think back to julia look for me we all thought as a back to the basket scorer. I mean, not only is that worse than we thought, but a lot of other things too. And so a guy that I think is... This might not make sense to some people, but I think it might make sense to you for me with this is TJ Warren. Like I think simultaneously mm-hmm. TJ Warren is a better player than most people think he is, but probably yes. worse fit for the modern NBA. So Absolutely. it's it's so, like he's a talented scorer. I love what he can do. You know, his floater game is great. He sometimes he makes passes that are even really surprising every once in a while. And you're sitting there. But like he just makes he has good judgment, and I really like that about him. But that in and of itself is not enough to carry a player to significant NBA success anymore. I wish it were. it was. It was a lot of fun when those kind of players could do it. And so with Warren, I want to see what else he can bring to the table. Can he be a little bit more active as a defender? The jump shot is an easy one to point to because if he could take and make more three-pointers, that would really help. So he's kind of both where... I could see it working, and I mean the Suns have time to figure this out because he's getting paid for another four years. But mm-hmm. it's going to be hard because, especially now that they have so many other options. And so I could see him sort of—I mean, not paralleling Brandon Knight in terms of injuries, but just kind of falling by the wayside a little bit. And then maybe another team discovers him in a couple of years, like gets him on a gets him on a whim, basically, and just says, "Oh, look, we can do something with that." And it's still not going to be this like guy who sets the world on fire, but remember that he has these talents that could be valuable.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible, a shot making uh, on cuts right around the basket. He's 10, 15 years ago would be a really impressive player. And like you said, he still is, but it's it's just not what you're looking for. And he, to me, really feels like the guy who would get lost in this wing glut
1: it certainly seems that way, at least right now, and especially I think the Ryan Anderson trade hurt him even more, though you could argue that Chris would have played above him anyway, so maybe it didn't as much. And we've alluded to this a couple of different times, talked about it a little bit, but the rotation here is is going to be absolutely fascinating. Who plays, how they balance this guard rotation, and... There are a bunch of different ways that we can address this, but I think the easiest place to start is, what do you think is this team, if in your opinion, is this team's best five-man lineup, and what lineup do you most want to see, and then what do you expect Kakashkov to go to late in games?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that the best crunch time lineup right now, without a starting point guard on the roster, is Booker, Bridges, Jackson... Ariza and Ayton. and then if they do acquire a point guard take out one of either Bridges or Jackson um, I think that gives you a lot of the versatility you'd be able to switch quite a bit I mean except for Booker certainly uh, two through four um, and maybe Booker can switch on some of those guys too uh, so you'd be able to have a real modern defensive lineup in, in that respect. And then you got a couple of shooters to space it out in Bridges and Ariza. Um, and obviously Booker, although in this case, he'd be the facilitator. So I think that's the team's best lineup. And, um, I'm not quite sure what, uh, Igor is going to go to. I could see some Ryan Anderson to when you need to goose up the offense, uh, instead of either Bridges or Jackson. So I think that. You know, a lot of that is is very uncertain right now for for how new this team is.
1: My instinct and it is absolutely an instinct is that Shaq Harrison is going to see time in those crunch time lineups just because even if you trust Devin Booker as being the guy. Having an additional creator on the floor is incredibly valuable. You could point to a bunch of different teams in the past for, for the value of that, especially if they're not taking as much away defensively. And I think Harrison should be able to do well there from from what I've seen from him so far. And so then you're probably the same guys you were thinking were on the mar- on the edge of Bridges and Jackson, probably be that guy as well. But the lineup you talked about is definitely the one that I'm most interested in seeing because yeah, it answers the most questions in terms of where this team can go and what they need most. Because if Devin Booker can handle that workload offensively and the Suns can score reliably, well, then you, you're thinking about what you need around him very, very differently. And also that group of players, I mean, Ariza is going to be a free agent, so he could potentially leave. Every other guy in that five is under contract for years to come. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. all of them are under contract or let's call it team control for at least four years. Mm -hmm. And so then you can grow into it and and you could even theoretically, depending on who's available, add somebody who is superior but fills a similar role. So that's going to be important. And then another key element of that lineup is going to be how DeAndre Ayton looks. I mean, they have – Solid enough floor spacing. We'll see. We'll see how much teams respect Josh Jackson's shot this year. I mean, I think that's going to be an important question. But also defensively, I mean, they'll probably that group will probably deploy more switching. I mean, at least two through four, but maybe you even dance around it a little bit with with Aiton. But also. He would be basically the only rim protector in that lineup. So, yeah. can you can you effectively stop other teams' best fives with DeAndre and as your only rim protector? And this year is not definitive, especially for a player as young as he is, but really for any rookie. But that doesn't mean. You know, the season is useless. It just means that you, you don't want to take anything as gospel. You just you take it and you learn from it and say, this is where he is now. What do we expect that he will be moving forward from this juncture? And he really has to be that guy
4: because uh, the way the Suns are building this and the way they want to play offensively you, I mean, you can't have a second big out there, really. And you look at this roster, there isn't really a, another rim protector. I mean, obviously Tyson Chandler, but you figure he's not going to really be playing, certainly not playing with Ayton. So um, he, he almost has to be that, you know? You hate to say it that way, because if he's not, he's not, and then you need to figure something else out. But uh, for this to really work long-term and for us to be thinking about can this Booker, Aiton... Uh, Ariza, well not Ariza, um, Bridges and Jackson Core become a real contender. You're gonna need. Uh, Aiton to be that rim protector.
1: And this gets into something, you brought up the Warriors Rocket series a little bit, that struck me about that series, is there are a lot of benefits to a switch heavy system and going small. You're, one of the main ideas is that you're not giving up the same quality of shots, and I agree with that. I, I mean, Reese is a great example of this. I thought he did a really nice job overall. One of the underappreciated concessions on that sort of a lineup, whether you're switching or not, is that you're probably not going to have good rim protection from mm-hmm. your from your other players. And I mean, the Warriors have gotten around that a little bit because they have Kevin Durant. Most teams aren't going to be able to have Kevin Durant, who's just another another basically seven footer who can who sometimes will be around the basket. And there will be times that it doesn't matter as much because teams aren't getting enough penetration because if you switch the screen, you're not giving uh, giving away as much of a seam. But I'm really interested to see where the Suns fit in with that. And there are going to be other teams now because I'm not sure Phoenix isn't the perfect like switching one through five idea. But one of the things that I'm really interested in this season, we'll be watching Phoenix for this, is how those approaches work with teams that are less talented than the ones that have tried to pull it off so far. And I mean, the Warriors and the Rockets are the Warriors and the Rockets. I I think that, you know, the lessons there aren't necessarily applicable, but they might be. And so if those teams can, can get by, if they can do better than I, I expect with it, then you have a, a more valid defensive scheme, even for teams that might not be in the playoff picture. And that would be very significant.
4: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, you look at the Suns offseason, they essentially are copying the Rockets. You know, uh, Booker is going to be the Harden role. Uh, you literally took Ariza and Anderson and possibly and then your top uh, point guard target is uh, possibly... Patrick Beverly uh, and then Ayton, at least in summer league, looked like a guy playing the capella role, although hopefully he'll end up being uh, a better offen- overall offensive player. So uh, I think the Suns very much are copycatting that, and uh, which is smart to do. You know, we see that in sports all the time, across all sports. If, if a team is doing one thing and finding a lot of success, other teams are going to copy it. So the question is, do the Suns have that same kind of personnel to pull that off?
1: Something else to consider, we've been focusing on the defensive end with that idea, but offensively, one of the elements that the Rockets have not to the same degree as the Warriors, but still do is passing at a lot of different positions and that's something Mm -hmm. else I want to watch with I think Aiton is actually an underappreciated passer, like there were times at Arizona where he would make reads that normally seven footers, especially kind of dominant scoring seven footers, sometimes even have different passing problems just because they can just get buckets, they don't need to look as much for teammates but he made the right pass an overwhelming proportion of the time which is really encouraging and so you have that and then some of these other young guys I'm not focusing as much on kind of Ariza and Anderson because we don't know if they're going to be part of the future but Booker and Bridges and Josh Jackson like all those guys have a little bit of that in them and so will they be able to make the right reads because that part of it is beneficial even as you add other talent around it so then theoretically like they're going to need to add another perimeter player is my instinct and that player is probably going to be more offensively capable than the player he replaces so that will help that will make life easier hopefully that will give more space to everybody like Aiden but you still need that passing and recognition and activity from everybody else to make that offense sing
4: yeah I agree completely and that's um what the Igor Kakashkov system's all about and I think that they are going to target those types of players and that that will be an underrated part especially if they do eventually bring in a point guard who can run the show you still have Booker who would be an above-average playmaker for his position? Josh Jackson certainly, in college at least, was above average there and and on down the line.
1: Something I wanted to ask you, as somebody who watches more Suns than I do, is what do you think Josh Jackson's ideal position is defensively? I mean, often I like to separate mm. the two things because they often are completely different answers. But who do you think he's best at defending at this point in career's career?
4: I mean, at this point, probably shooting guards. Um, just because the biggest thing with with bigger players is that he doesn't quite have the strength quite yet. But uh, with the the quickness and the athleticism, um, as well as the size, um, I'd have to go with shooting guard.
1: I would too, Uh, and that leads into... But the other kind of lines that's being drawn in the modern NBA is, can you defend other positions well enough to get by? So, because that's really part of what switching is. I mean, you have this idea of maybe you, maybe you're not amazing at this, but like, will you get exploited? And one, one of the definitive elements for Josh Jackson and Bridges is exactly the same question. Is like, so if they get put onto a four, I'll Mm -hmm. use Jabari Parker as the example here because he's the first guy that came into my head. Okay, Jabari Parker gets the ball in an isolation against either of those two guys. What happens? Does he? How aggressively does he attack them? Do, how close to the basket does he get? Do they foul him? All those sorts of things. Because if you can just reach that basic threshold of they're not going to go after me every time, even if it's imperfect, if Jackson Bridges still need to get stronger, they can still provide a lot of value. And I'm genuinely unsure with those two guys, partially because they're so young, where they fit in with that. And it'll be a big story for this team.
4: Yeah. And last year, the answer would be barbecue chicken. <laughs> you know, uh. Jackson just wasn't strong enough. Like you it, you get switched onto a guy like Julius Randle and that's bad news for the Suns. So I think those are both guys who in theory could switch 1 through 4 later on in their career and their ability to put on that strength to be able to do that will go a long way to see how good the Suns defense could be.
1: Thinking more broadly in terms of the Suns and the in the overall NBA, what do you think are their strengths and weaknesses compared to the average NBA team?
4: I mean, now it's the versatility because you do have a lot of different players who um, who can play different roles uh, alongside. I mean, I guess the number one thing is they have two what should be young stars. Obviously, Aiton hasn't played a game yet, so who knows? But you pick them number one overall. You expect them to eventually be a, a very good player. So you have those two guys. And uh being able to put pieces that fit around them, um, like I said, who are versatile in a bridges and a Jackson and who could play different roles, I think long term that's what the Sun's advantage is gonna be, along with the coach who's gonna be able to know how to use them. And um I'm generally a guy who doesn't think coaches swing things too much outside of the the top five coaches, obviously what Popovich has done is incredible. But I think that from what the Suns have had, uh, Kakashkovs is going to be a major advantage.
1: Yeah, if you want to think about like VORCs of like value over replacement coach, my instinct is that Kakashkov is going to be a meaningful upgrade over the last couple that they've had. And there are a lot of benefits. I agree with you that the, the coaching impact is really felt at the top, but I think it's also felt at the bottom too, in terms of getting guys to buy in. And one of the... Definitive elements, we've talked more about Kukashkov's offense than anything else, because partially that's what we know more about. But a key component of identifying coaches that are good is whether they can get their players to compete reliably defensively. And, you know, some of that is veteran leadership and a lot of other things and just having the right guys. But if the Suns can battle more on that end, I think they can really improve off of the disaster that was their defense last season. And so for strengths, I, I think something that's... so. If, if we're going to pretend that the one doesn't exist for the moment in time, depth at like the two through four is a really interesting, and yeah. at the five two, to a point, five's a little bit different because we don't know how good Aiton is right now. Like if he's if he's starting caliber at any point soon, then that'll be a strength as well. And that means they, they just have a lot of guys to try. And considering how thin the wing is overall in the league, Having a lot of potentially capable guys, especially because they have overall pretty high upside, you know, it'll probably take some time for that to be realized. They don't expect it to be this year, but having a lot of options is definitely a good thing for them. And I would say another weakness, at least for the time being, and hopefully kakashkov's system helps this is the number of reliable shot creators they have and Mm -hmm. they they have i think that they're they're they have better passing now than they did before though some of those guys it might need to be take a little bit for it to be actualized but you need to create those seams in the first place and you know devin booker can absolutely do that and i want to see what their young point guards can do and and melton and everything else but like that's at least to me, that's not really the strength of like Josh Jackson's game. It's certainly not the strength of Trevor Reese's game. And so that could lead to a circumstance where the hole is less than the sum of their parts, at least in the immediate. And then maybe that clarifies in the in the long term, either by adding superior talent, these guys improving, or just, you know, the getting into the system a little bit more and that can that can grease it a little bit better. But I could see that I could see their offense stagnating a little bit. And one key thing that I'm gonna watch with Phoenix this year is their crunch time offense. Offense? Because most NBA teams, especially if they're playing against a team that they don't think is going to make the playoffs, they, they don't bring it all 48 minutes of every single game. It's It's just a fact of life in the NBA. And I know many lament that. And certainly, if you want to talk in the abstract, it'd be great if every NBA team could care every minute of every game. But in the last five minutes of close games, they all care. And so can the Suns get it done against NBA caliber athletes, the best five guys on an opposing team, when they're engaged? And if they can do that, even starting this year, then I will be a much stronger believer that this group can get it together without substantial reinforcements over the next couple years.
4: Yeah, I I agree. That's all spot on, um, especially the the playmaking. And I fully expect them to make some sort of trade i don't think you can go into the season especially after what happened last year with this as your point guard uh rotation as much as melton and akobo and like you said harrison has been was really good in summer league and was pretty solid last year um at least in a reserve role i think they're going to bring in another playmaker because that that's a glaring weakness right now
1: if you're right, something worth watching is is how they approached the contract of that player. Like it seems mm-hmm. like the the door was open for them to take on Dennis Schroeder if they wanted to. I think it was a good decision that they didn't because Schroeder, while not a bad player, he wouldn't have really cured what ailed them. And fifteen and a half million over the next for each of the next three seasons is a lot, even if you yeah. could get better. And. That isn't to say, oh, they have to be, you know, an expiring contract or anything like that. But I want to see what McDonough prioritizes if they're going for that player. Is it immediate contribution? Is it fit with Devin Booker or contract? How they square that? Because point guard is one of the only positions in the NBA where supply doesn't exceed demand, but it's probably closer than it is at any other spot.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no question. And I mean, you look at the guys who are uh, reportedly out in the market. You're talking about a lot of expiring contracts. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie and. Brooklyn another possibility uh Corey Joseph in Indiana uh, and Beverly of course so it it will be interesting to see uh and then the other big thing is are the Suns actually going to be able willing to put one of their first round picks uh to sweeten it um not sure that would be smart again like we said this is a rebuilding team this isn't the final piece per se and uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily usually want to put that in, but perhaps for the growth of this unit, maybe it is valuable enough.
1: Yeah, it could be. And I, I think it'll be a, a significant sliding scale in terms of the, the quality of the player they're getting back. And I, I I know I've heard some mention of Terry Rozier there. And Rozier yeah. is really interesting because there is a, a larger possibility that he's the long term answer than a lot of the other guys that I've heard. But the other downside of giving up a significant asset is that you're basically saying he's the guy, you know, yeah. because there's the practical consideration of the, that, you, that you get somebody. But also, I mean, the example I've used here for years, and he was a recent son, is, is Alfred Peyton. and so this when the magic drafted him they took a couple of years where they didn't really use any of their resources of point guard because they wanted to give him a chance and so whoever if they make a bet on a point guard that's the guy if it's if it's somebody more like in the rosier mold than batch beverly for obvious reasons then that's that's your bet for a couple of years and so it's more important to get it right
4: i will say this a mcdonough loves um Acquiring those guys who are going to be restricted free agents the following offseason did it with Bledsoe, did it with Brandon Knight. So I think the question is, of course, why would Boston do that when you could be losing Kyrie Irving the next year? And what price would it make sense for Boston to give up that kind of an insurance policy?
1: The answer is It would have to be a high price. I mean, yeah,
4: oh yeah.
1: I mean, because what makes the what makes the Celtics situation so different is that they have lofty aspirations this year. Like, this isn't some sort of like, oh, they'll be good in the future. Like, no, they expect to be in the title mix this year. So, not only are you dealing with the insurance policy for Kyrie leaving in the summer of twenty nineteen, but as they understand better than anybody, there's the risk that he is unable to play either to his own standard or at all at some point that is important during this upcoming season.
4: Yeah, there's no question about. Certainly insurance policy this year, insurance policy going forward.
1: Yeah, so that'll that would be a hard negotiation, and we'll see who who hits the market. This is also going to be—I'm not sure that the Suns will be super desirable here, though. Who knows? Maybe they will be. I think this is going to be an exceedingly strong buyout year, and so maybe there's a guy who just says, "Hey, I can be on the—I can start on the Suns for a month, even if they're not going to make mm-hmm. the playoffs. Like, I'd rather do that than play 10 minutes a game on Team X that's going to get knocked out in the first or second round."
4: Yeah, kind of like in the Ryan Anderson mold.
1: Right. Yeah, I would be. I think that's something that that players should do more often. Basically, I'm in a bad situation. And I'd rather be somewhere that's marginally better at, for a little bit instead of doing that. And so, I mean, if I were advising players, I would tell them to do that all the time, especially, and, you know, the Suns, they're, they they have, might might have guys on the other side of that too. Let's say for like Tyson Chandler, like if if Rashawn Holmes overtakes him, by that point, you know, by, by March, he will have given plenty of mentoring to DeAndre Ayton. Maybe at that point he says, well, I'd rather mm-hmm. be, be probably wouldn't give up much money, but you could let him go and then you'd have an open roster spot to do something else with. Yeah, for sure. Next big thing, I think you, we've we talked about a lot of these, but it's a good distillation of what do you, what are the key questions for you that the Suns need to answer this season.
4: I mean, I don't know if it'll be this season, but the number one overarching question is uh, is Booker Aiton the core of the next great Suns team? I think it's as simple as that. I think that's was the bet that the Suns essentially made this off season by choosing Aiton number one overall when someone like. For example, Luka Doncic was available, and perhaps he could have gone that way. And then, obviously, the $158 million extension, the Suns are uh, essentially married to Booker now for for the long term. So um, the question is, the worst record in the league last year, are you going to start to see those, those uh, steps forward? And are these the two guys... Um, I guess at the end of the season are you confident that these are the two guys that are going to take you there?
1: My number one question is very similar to that and it's what is Devin Booker's ideal role offensively mm-hmm. in particular but defensively too to a point which is, you know, is he a secondary ball handler or is he a primary guy and Booker is so young that it's kind of like what I said with rookies before where you don't want anything to be determinative definitive but that information is incredibly important because the Suns are going to have an opportunity to bring in talented players and knowing whether you need another ball handler is maybe the most important thing, especially now that they already have the center position penciled in for the foreseeable future. And so... And they have a bunch of other other wing options, and so it's fascinating to me that like they that they chose Aiden over the chance of getting Luka Doncic because if Doncic is that guy, he would be a perfect fit for the Suns. But we don't know if he mm-hmm. is. Like there's an uncertainty yep. there, which is important to acknowledge. Just like there, there's an uncertainty with Aiden. So that's a key question for them. And then the other big one is they have this constellation of young players, and there'll be preliminary evaluations. But where do those guys fit in on a much better team? You know, if if Phoenix, wherever you want to draw the line for success, that could be a playoff team, that could be a team that can make the conference finals. If you want to be a championship contender, you can be a championship contender. But those, all those different lenses are extremely important for guys like Mikel Bridges, for Josh Jackson, for DeAndre Ayton as well. And it's not always about, you know, like, okay, this guy's a backup, so we're going to get somebody in his position and fill it up, because you're choosing, especially in the draft, you're taking the best available player, but it's how open are you to taking a player at their spot with their skills and everything like that and so you can make it work especially with kind of the two through four guys it takes all kinds and you can mix and match a lot more than you can at the one in the five but how those guys show out how those guys develop is going to be extremely important this year
4: yeah no question and then just as one more thing um like you've said Suns could have some cap space next offseason a significant cap space especially if they do stretch ryan anderson and just who's that third star Who could uh, fit in this core, whether it's a point guard, a lot of good point guards um, on the market. So kind of along with what you're saying is what kind of piece do you need to fit in next to Devin Booker?
1: right and if they can clear that kind of space and also get a good enough draft pick where they can get somebody a value like you could even depending on the need you could even go for the same thing twice and just hope that one of them hits or yeah, they go in different yeah. directions there are a lot of different approaches there but knowing what they have is going to be so important because that informs all of those decisions we can move into predictions the way i like to do this is so there are kind of three kind of sub predictions most uh, likely is is one and like the most likely record outcome all that and then also kind of a reasonable best case doesn't have to be the absolute best case but just like you know like what a really good season would look like and then what a kind of a worst case scenario season would look like
4: okay um i'll predict 33 or 34 wins i think they are significantly improved from last year and um i think one thing that when you look at the sun season as a whole they went one and 26 during one stretch late in the season They were not trying to win those games, you know. So I don't think they're coming from a team that won 21 games. I think that they're coming from a team that um, all things equal would have been 26, 27 range. So that's why I see, uh, you know, somewhere 32, 33 wins um, predicted. Best case, I'll go with uh, 37 wins. I think this would certainly... Uh, include acquiring a point guard. I think that if the Suns do uh, pick up a Patrick Beverly, th- then that my best case might even be a little bit higher, might even be 38-39 wins. Um, and then worst case, I'll, I'll go uh, 28 wins. Um, if you have more poker injuries, uh, if the hand injury does linger, um, if, if DeAndre Ayton's defense is not up to par, I could certainly see them being even at the very bottom of the conference. I think they're going to be better than Sacramento, but uh, I think 28 wins is well within reason, um, especially if they do go ahead and tank the last month or so
1: mine are pretty close to yours but a little bit a little bit lower so my expected is 31 for them and so the comparison that I would make is is the Knicks last year and I mean it's also worth remembering the Knicks actually had some of that tail off stuff they we were talking about so they ended the year they were just under. they were they were 21st in offense and 25th in defense I think the Suns are a little bit better than that which is why I have them at 31 the Knicks last year were, were a little bit worse in close games so they ended up at 29 but that's a kind of you know I could see them being you know know somewhere between 15 and 20 on offense and then somewhere around 25 maybe and and if Aiton is awesome then they can be better than that on on defense the ceiling on this team is really interesting and a lot of that does depend on getting a point guard so I'm gonna go with with 36 for now there are a lot of pair like because you could go in a lot of different directions with that I'm thinking that's like a league average or better offense and then you know a better than the bottom defense is probably about right with the 36-1 team and then at the bottom I'm going to go a little bit lower with like 24, but basically on the same idea, which is that the young guys are just not ready yet like they could show signs but like deandre Ayton's a great example it's like deandre Ayton can yeah. look like he is going to be a very good player and still not be a, a very helpful guy this year it happens all the time with young players and if they don't figure out this point guard thing and then i could see it going that direction i ex- you know i don't expect it that's why it's a worst case scenario but it's um it's interesting to me that the suns have that bigger range and i think that speaks mm-hmm. to just the amount of potential they have and also i think the respect that you and I both have for Igor because he I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of physical talent that was underutilized the last couple years and so it is not a guarantee that he will be able to unlock that I mean this isn't like they brought in Greg Popovich or something but he has a better chance than the people they've had recently and so that leads to those you know like I think I, I you said 37 I said 36 like that's a pretty pretty strong best case for a team that won 21 games last year
4: yeah I mean, the the Suns have already gone out and said their goal is to be the most improved team in the NBA this year. I would say the goal should be second most because I don't think you're going to be more improved than the Lakers necessarily. But uh, I do think that there's uh, – first of all, if you're the worst team in the league, there's there's a huge range to improve from. But – I just see with with Igor, with some of these veteran additions, uh, Ariza in particular, they're just the talent has been upgraded significantly, and in particular the shooting has. And uh, the Suns just couldn't make threes last year, and I think that three point shooting will, if not be a strength, they'll at least be closer to league average there. And I think because of that, because of the, the modern way that they're playing, like we talked about with all the potential switching um i see them being a lot better than last year uh the big thing to me is just you're in the western conference this is an incredible conference and if the suns were in the east i would even i would even say they could possibly uh sniff the back end of the playoff spot but um it's this is not a good time to be an up-and-coming team in the west there's just too many good teams will be playing on a nightly basis
1: well, what makes the West even tougher is that the bottom got stronger. I mean, non-playoff Absolutely. teams, the Lakers, the Mavericks are, should be better, meaningfully better than they were. And the then, Grizzlies are better. And then, yeah, I think the Grizzlies are actually were probably, I haven't run the full numbers yet, but they're probably my most likely most improved team because they only yeah. won 22 games last year. Yeah. And so if they stay remotely healthy, they could win, you know, like 35 or something. You can hear the dunked on preview with them. The Lakers are another interesting one. It's just going to depend on a lot of different factors. That's a whole different kettle of fish. But. Yeah, so the, the Suns are going to go through that, and th- there aren't as many easy matchups. And you know, Sacramento is still Sacramento. I think they'll be better, but not not as dramatically improved as the Suns or some of these other teams. But yeah, it's it's going to be a real big challenge for them. And so that gets into something that is going to be worth watching for Phoenix this year, which is can they win? It's not necessarily like the games they should win, but the games where they have some sort of advantage. So that could be maybe they're at home and the other team's on it back to back. Or, you know, the other teams just coming back from a road trip or something like that. Like those games, because the NBA schedule gives various teams advantages at seemingly random moments in the year. And so even shaky teams can take advantage of those sometimes. And if if the Suns can start there and then eventually they start beating teams at full strength and even strength and all that kind of stuff, I think it's a good place to start.
4: Yeah, no question. And this is just completely a building, developing year. Uh, First year with the new coach. Um, Last year to me when we were talking last year the number one goal for me was for the suns to get as high of a draft pick as possible so to me last year was actually successful uh in that regard in particular and now i think it's time to start trying to chart that course back to being a winning team um obviously uh it would be certainly fair to put the suns 14th in the west based on how strong all those other teams are but i think that even if they're only moved from 15th to 14th in the West, they're going to be significantly better.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that for sure. Anything else you think we should definitely talk about with the Suns? I mean, this is an, an open floor for you if there's something else that you think we should discuss. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have one. We talked about him briefly, but I'm really excited to see what Kobo can do this year. Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, um, he was a guy, I know a lot of the advanced stats models had him as maybe even a top 15 player in the draft. And depending on what the Suns do at point guard, he's going to get a lot of opportunities. Um, I liked his playmaking in summer league, the little that we did see of him. And, you know, he, he's in a perfect spot where there will be opportunities for him to shine.
1: Really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on.
4: Yeah, glad. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Michael Schwartz for taking the time to come on. You can appreciate his work as a part of ESPN. And also you can follow him on Twitter at Schwartz Center M. So that's S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-C-E-N-T-E-R-M. And I'm going to enjoy watching that because his follower count deserves a, a pretty big boost and he, he's just such a great resource for the Phoenix Suns and that team is going to be very, very interesting this year. Thanks, of course, also to Albert Namad for coming on earlier. You can follow him at Albert Namad. And there is still one more episode of Dunked On that I led. That episode will come out on the usual schedule, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, depending on when you do it. But I can't say, even though it is is pre-recorded, I can't say who it's with because it involves an announcement, involves somebody where something happened, which is awesome. I'm extremely excited about it. And that's why I can't talk about it. So it's under wraps. Let's put it that way. If you want to support this show or basically any other podcast. A lot of things you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If you want to be super awesome, you can do it in both. If you use a different podcast player, it's still a very big thing in our business. Subscribe, download every episode. Those are extremely important. Also, check out our sponsors. I mean, for this episode, you have The Athletic, theathletic.com slash Capspace, 40% off. Everlane, Indochino, SeatGeek, real row of great sponsors. So thrilled to have all of them on board. As I said, the next episode will come out Wednesday night, Thursday morning on two teams that will be announced at that juncture. But I think you'll be excited for it. And yeah, we're getting close to full-time dunked on. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you can check out the East over-under podcast that I did with Arturo Galetti as a part of Real Jam Radio. A lot of fun, super substantive. That one's two hours as well. So if you're hurting for content, you should have plenty there. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar.